the day before Thanksgiving in 1971, a man identifying himself as Dan Cooper bought a plane ticket from Portland to Seattle. He hijacked the plane, claiming he had a bomb in his briefcase and demanded $200,000 in four parachutes. He jumped out of the plane with the money and the bomb somewhere over the Pacific Northwest, never to be seen again. The FBI claims to have investigated over a thousand people, including dozens of deathbed confessions. In 2016, 45 years after the hijacking, the FBI suspended its investigation of the case. While the FBI is no longer looking for D.B. Cooper, there is a community of people who are trying to solve the case on their own. Welcome to the Cooper Vortex. In this episode, we're lucky to be joined by a lifelong resident of the Pacific Northwest, a former Air Force Staff Sergeant and graduate of Pacific University, this dude spends his days clerking in arraignments for the Oregon Judiciary and his nights as a Pacific Northwest historian. If he has any free time, he spends it debating people on the D.B. Cooper subreddit. That's where I found him. Enjoy this episode with my good friend, Jimmy Calhoun. All right, Jimmy, when did you first hear about D.B. Cooper? Boy, uh, so the first time that I specifically remember seeing D.B. Cooper uh, when I was pretty young, like maybe nine or ten. My grandma gave me a coffee table book um, from the early 80s. I believe it was published in 1981, anywhere from 79 to 81. And it was a Reader's Digest compilation book called Mysteries of the Unexplained. And it had all kinds of like little mysteries and occult things, Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, but written about and and cited in a scholarly kind of format. It was a Reader's Digest thing. Um, And there was a little uh, section on D.B. Cooper in the back. Um, And being that I grew up in Washington State um, and just kind of the allure of the mysterious, uh, they had the composite in there that it's the Bing Crosby sketch. It's kind of colloquially known as and the one with the sunglasses on and, you know, it was just very intriguing. Um, so I think I was probably seven or eight at that time. So this would have been in the late nineties. And how old are you right now? 31. So you'd be one of the young guys in this uh, group here. <laughs> yeah, yep, One <laughs> of the younger ones, no doubt about it. And you, you know, I'm from Washington state also. And so it's just as, awesome. as someone who's a fan of, of mystery and stuff like that, Cooper is just sort of a a local legend, a myth kind of a thing. When did it go past that for you into something that you were seriously reading about and researching? Oh, pretty quickly, for sure. Um, So when I was younger, you know, you're kind of limited by the resources you have at your disposal. And in the late 90s, the internet wasn't something that everybody had. We didn't have internet where I grew up for many, many years. We didn't even have a computer really until I was um, in my mid teens. Uh, So I would say probably over the next few years. So by the time I was 12, uh, I was reading kind of the the usual literature, which at that point was the Himmelsbach or Yeah, yeah, the Himmelsbach book, which is called Norjack, I believe. Uh, It's a book that he wrote, uh, for those who are unaware, although people listening to this are probably (laughs) aware. It's the book that Ralph Himmelsbach wrote uh, with somebody else. I can't remember 
who co-authored it. But uh, so I was reading, I read that book. And then of course I read uh, Richard Tussauds book, which is D.B. Cooper, Dead or Alive. Uh, and then I even read, there was a novel, it was just called D.B., and it was a fictional novel, um, and it was a it was published by a major publishing company. Um, I didn't end up reading all of that at that time, uh, but so that and then the last one that I specifically remember reading was uh, D.B. Cooper. What really happened? By I think Max Gunther. Uh, yes, and Max so Gunther. That book kind of resurfaced a few years ago, but so that was at age twelve or thirteen is when I. Uh, started reading stuff like that and really dug in as far as I can could at that age right uh, could didn't really have the internet so it was kind of like read everything you can and then try to hope some information pops on the local news Max Gunther at 12 years old that's interesting and I'm kind of jealous at the same time oh yeah <laughs> well <laughs> I don't know much of it I actually retained you know like I was probably no more capable of a reader than anybody else at that age, especially. Uh, but I just kind of was a weird kid, you know, so I really was interested in mysteries and stuff. And my grandma was really into like the occult and, you know, the Loch Ness Monster and the Bermuda Triangle. And these are all things I fixated on. Uh, so I don't know if it, it was because I was particularly intelligent. I just was kind of odd. And so I, I've reread these books, all of them, and I, I don't think I uh, retained very much. But yeah, so that's when it really kicked off. At 12, that's pretty impressive. So from there, I assume you got onto the drop zone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I sure did. I, of course, yep. That, that was a little later, but yeah, yep. And then when did you start posting and interacting with other people in the Cooper Vortex? I became aware of you on Reddit. Yeah, you know, I was a really late bloomer with that. Um, I never posted on uh, the internet forums because there's been a few of them. Uh, there used to be one called Sluggo. Um, and Sluggo, I don't remember the gentleman's name who ran that, but he was kind of one of those early I'd guys. rather refer to him as Sluggo. I'm not sure if he wants his name out there. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, perfect. I don't remember it. But his website, I believe it was uh, N467US. Oh, okay. Very well. Well, so there was that and there wasn't really a like a chat feature on there. But uh, yeah, so I didn't really uh, post anything until maybe the last couple of years. Um, as some of the suspects started to be brought up again, and I kind of really got into the case again you know because it comes and goes and so this was at a point where I was like really into it again uh, I did make a couple posts but there was a good 15 years there or yeah maybe 10 to 15 years where I never post anything I was just kind of a fly on the wall that would read other people's posts was there anything that sparked the interest back in it in particular or just sort of timing and circumstances well so like I always look up D.B. Cooper stuff like as far as you know, um, every three or four months when I'm not really diving into it all the time. So every three or four months, you know, I'll be like, I wonder if anything's going on in DB Cooper world. I wonder if there's any new information or a new suspect. And so I've done that off and on forever. Um, and this latest one, uh, I just got done with school. And so I had a big chunk of my free time that came available. And uh, my girlfriend lives in Vancouver. Um, so kind of 
being in Vancouver, I think I had a conversation with somebody, oh yeah, we were in DB Cooper territory. And then that kind of, it's like, Hey, I have some free time now. I'm really going to start to look at this stuff again. And so the latest one uh, has been because of that, but you know, it's triggered by different stuff all the time, you know, over the years, something will come up or I'll see something on the news or something. Um, but it's always right there, you know? All right. Well, let's get into it. I want to start with something I said we would get back to in the last episode, and I was criticized for not getting back to it. So we'll start right there. Cool. What is your take on the Max Gunther book, Jimmy? Is it real? Is it a hoax? Oh, boy. (laughs) I, you know, when I was younger, uh, because I've read it a few times over the years, and I actually have a copy of it sitting in my car right now. So, you know, when I was younger, I really wanted to believe that it was true. And I think that that kind of a lot of this stuff starts with like a want to believe, like if you want to believe, you know, D.B. Cooper survived or if you want to believe that he didn't survive. And maybe it's something that's kind of in your subconscious that you're not super aware of, uh, (laughs) then, you know, you'll kind of find a theory that tends to fit that, I think. But as far as the Max Gunther book goes, I don't believe it. Uh, and I don't believe it, not because I, I think Max Gunther was a liar, not because I think, uh, you know, he was not a good writer. Uh, he was a, a fantastic journalist. Uh, I don't know his full history, really, but I know that he won different uh, awards for his writing. And I know that he was a very esteemed uh, journalist for quite some time. So it's not really that. It's just that I just don't trust that people are the most ethical. Um, <laughs> and so there's no verification in the Max Gunther story. You know, there's no tangible evidence. There's nothing that can really verify the story. We just have this lady who said she knew who D.B. Cooper was, basically, that she had, you know, and it's also a little too romantic and a little too perfect for me to really believe it without any, you know, again, no documentation, no citations, no nothing like that. And so to me, it's a, it's a, it's an awesome story. I love that book, but I, I just don't, without any proof, I, I don't believe it because there's been too many people with similar stories kind of. But the problem with the Max Gunther book is who is pulling off this con? Is it Max Gunther? Is it Clara? Is it both? Yeah. Yeah, no, it is fascinating. I have thought of that too. Um, especially with, you know, I don't believe that that Gunther had any other types of uh, books like this or any type of of writing like this other than the D.B. Cooper book. So I tend to believe that somebody was probably, it probably wasn't him, but, you know, as happened earlier in the D.B. Cooper universe, you know, in the early 70s after the hijacking, um, and this is available in the FBI 302s. This is something that kind of got lost the time for many, many years. Uh, somebody else pulled a kind of a con job like this. Although with Clara and Max Gunther, it's kind of strange because it's like, well, what would her motivation be to carry something like this forward? She wasn't being compensated that we know of financially. Um, so what, why would she do it? But again, you know, I don't, I don't know if people need a reason necessarily, you know, That's true. It's just, like you said, she wasn't financially compensated according to what we know. There is the the weird details, like you could verify those birthday messages that sort of originated the contact, which uh, if you're not 
aware of what we're talking about. We're like super deep into the weeds on the Max <laughs> Gunther story here. So, but it's, it's interesting to me because Max Gunther presents it as nonfiction, but finishes the book saying he's not sure whether this is true or not, but he does believe that it's true. And right. to stake your reputation as a journalist, publishing a fake story, uh, especially in, I think the book's like 1985, is a lot bigger deal than now where any news story could be could be fake right. or be completely made up. And there's no punishment or anything like that nowadays. But I think in 1985, if you would have done that, it would have been a much bigger deal. And I think it would have been the end of his career. For sure. Yeah. And, you know, the the part with the disclaimer, you know, I'm not sure what the legal like the legal boundaries are. Like if his publisher was like, you should put a disclaimer in there somewhere or if he did it on his own volition. I'm not sure, of course. But I mean, he could have believed it, you know, and that's if he believed it. And then to him, it was nonfiction, you know, and I think that case could be made for a lot of people. You know, uh, I'm sure we'll get into other suspects and stuff, but I think a lot of times people that that publish these stories that write these books some of them I think some of them don't dig that deep and so that you know they don't have to think if it's true or not they just kind of go with it but uh, I think in Max Gunther's case and in many other cases they genuinely believe that something is true and so that kind of takes them off the hook a little bit at least you know uh, psychologically anyway. That's very true and very well said and applies to most people in the Cooper Vortex. I think. Yeah, it definitely does. <laughs> so let's finish off this Max Gunther thing. Do you think cool. that there is any way that that book could lead us who, to who D.B. Cooper is? No, not really. <laughs> well, so I know that there's some folks who, and I, and I don't want to mention them specifically. I don't know if they would want that or not, but I do know that there's some people that have done extensive research on it. Um, and I'm aware of the suspect that's linked to it. Um, and, you know, William J. Smith. Say, right. William J. Smith, a railroad worker. Uh, he's from the eastern United States, Pennsylvania, I believe. Uh, and so and he does look a lot like the sketch. He's almost too perfect. But but um, so I don't want to ever say like, no way, like never, ever. It's possible. It's possible. I mean, a lot of that book, you know when matched up with what we kind of think we know now uh, a lot of it does sound pretty plausible you know the fact that his last name was Leclerc uh, and how there might be a, a, a French connection <laughs> not to reference the classic movie with Gene Hackman but uh, there might be some kind of French connection um, and so there's some other stuff too I think that in the book and I don't remember exactly what his job was in the book, but I believe he was some kind of engineer. And so there's these parallels. Industrial chemicals. I mean, if you're looking for D.B. Cooper, that, you know, with what we know now, based on uh, the analysis of Tom K, you know, and, and uh, the independent research lab that also analyzed the tie, it doesn't get much better than that. So, you know, those are pretty big coincidences. So those things, you know, but everything in D.B. Cooper is kind of like that, you know, it's like, well, <laughs> as soon as you think, you know, for sure, like, no, there's no way this is the guy. Then something's like, well, maybe. But, uh, you know, I think that probably coincidental, pretty amazing coincidences, really pretty ironic. But I would be shocked if it if it led to uh, 
the true identity of DB Cooper. I would be pretty surprised. I think I would be surprised as well, although I would love it if that book turned out to be totally true. Oh, me too. Uh, <laughs> me too. Yeah, I would love that. If, you know, Max Gunther was a he was a good author, too. He was a good writer. Um, and he, you know, narratively, the book holds up great. Um, it's well paced. Um, he definitely knew what he was doing on the technical writing side. Um, it's not too long. You know, it, it goes along at a pretty good clip. So there's that. But also, I mean, who doesn't want to believe that he had a romantic rendezvous and he survived and all these things? Like, of course, of course, I want to believe that. Yeah, the romantic rendezvous is uh, makes for a great story. It does make for a great story. And, you know, there's a lot of value in that, even if it, you know, probably, in my opinion, anyway, will ne never end up being really tied to the D.B. Cooper thing. I like the fiction books that are based on D.B. Cooper as well. There was one novel that I talked about. It's just called D.B. I don't remember who wrote it, but uh, it was good, too. You know, people are are uh, at least some people are, are very adept at, at weaving a narrative around, you know, things like this mysteries. It's, it's kind of this historical fiction angle. But uh, anyway, so even if it's a complete work of fiction, uh, I do love that book. What are your favorite books on D.B. Cooper? And it could be the same question, but what books do you recommend others start with? Yeah, for sure. Well, so this is kind of crazy. Um, and I didn't really find this out until recently. So my favorite book on D.B. Cooper is the Richard Tussaud book, uh, D.B. Cooper, Dead or Alive. It's kind of a classic, you know, in the D.B. Cooper lore. Um, it's a book that has been talked about a lot. Richard Tussaud was an interesting guy. Um, and I love that book because there's a lot of stuff in that book um, that is really interesting, that it doesn't get repeated a lot when the story and, and he talked, I believe he worked directly with Tina Mucklow, did interviews with uh, Tina. And so there's some interesting nuggets in there that uh, I could completely forgotten about because I hadn't read the book in a long time. And so when I picked the book up again a few weeks ago and I read it, there was some stuff in there. Well, it's probably been a few months now, but <laughs> there was some stuff in there where I was like, holy cow, I, I didn't even really realize this or I had completely forgotten these important little pieces of information. Um, and so I definitely recommend that. It's kind of difficult to come by. Um, most bookstores aren't going to have it. I believe it's been out of print forever. He only printed 50 or 60,000 copies, I think. Um, so that's, it's kind of harder to find, but if you can find it and get a good deal on it, that's a great one. Um, the book Skyjack, I think by, uh, Jeffrey Gray is a good one. I'm not so partial to the, to the personal narrative that kind of, I'm more of you know, at least with this type of stuff, I'm more like, just give me the facts. I want to know facts. I want citations. I want to see all the evidence. So the personal parts of it are not, you know, my, my favorite thing in the world. But... Right. Skyjack is an adventure that you follow along with. Right. And even though it's not, you know, my number one favorite thing, uh, you know, the fact that it's not just the facts, it's still a great book. And Jeffrey Gray, I think, uh, as a researcher, really remained impartial for the most part and and did his best um and it comes across well so that's a good one but um and then the ralph himmelsbach book which was <laughs> one of my favorites when i was younger and i had no idea but it's 
almost impossible to get a copy of that book now. I owned one for a long time, and I think I just lost it over the years. It's like three or $400 online. That makes me so upset. If I could, today is actually the fourth anniversary of the Cooper Vortex, but if, if I could go back in time to when I started the show, the only piece of advice I would give myself would be to buy as many copies of these books as I can, because five years ago, six years ago, when I started buying these books, I want to say I got Tussauds book for like $7 on Amazon. Um, I got Himmelsbox book used for like $13 and it was a signed copy when I got it, Man, which I think most, I think most of them are. I think so too. Yeah. I only ever had uh, a discarded library copy. And I, if I remember right, I think it was signed. Yeah. No. And that, the Himmelsbach book, you know, I would probably put that even above the Jeffrey Gray one, not for any other reason other than Himmelsbach is kind of one of these key players in the D.B. Cooper uh, universe or vortex, <laughs> so to speak. Um, and it's really interesting to kind of try to get his full viewpoint because it changes over the years right you know when you hear him in 1978 when he's doing in search of with leonard nimoy or 1979 maybe um you know he sounds a little bit more open-minded as to the possibilities of who this guy could be then fast forward to the mid-2000s when he's on different broadcasts like the national geographic one suddenly you know he used filthy language he says so he kind of goes against himself a little bit but part of that could be that when you do broadcasts or when you do programs for you know major networks like that, they kind of tend to splice things and make cuts here and make cuts there, um, and and present some information out of context. You know, if for no other reason other than you know they have forty minutes to do this show, and so, I mean, I'm not sure if that's how Himmelsbach really felt in the 2000s and if it really changed that much from the 1970s, but. His book is a really fascinating insight into how he really thought. And I haven't read that one in quite a while. It's really hard to get a copy of it. What about the more modern books? Dr. Edwards book, Bruce Smith, um, Drew Beeson, Paratrooper of Fortune. Uh, I, so the suspect books. Um, yeah, Bruce Smith's book I have read. Um, I know that it would probably draw a considerable amount of ire from him that I haven't even mentioned his book yet and it's not deliberate. Um, so Bruce Smith's book, I like, um, you know, I understand like Bruce Smith is a great writer. Uh, he's a great wordsmith. He's a great orator. He speaks really well. He speaks in front of people excellently. Um, and I, and I really enjoy listening to Bruce and I enjoyed the book, but it's not my favorite reference material just because I think there are some elements in there that, you know, the stuff where the FBI is kind of complicit or, you know, maybe they are also, you know, know more than they're saying. Um, I don't really believe that. And so those aspects of Bruce Smith's book, um, which is D.B. Cooper and the FBI, I believe, it's a great book. I do recommend it. Uh, But for me, in the types of material that I have the most faith in, uh, you know, again, I like the facts. personal anecdotes or uh, persuasive writing as it relates to mysteries and things like that. It's not my favorite. So uh, I have read it. It's a great book. Um, Paratrooper of Fortune, I haven't read. Um, I'm familiar with Drew Beeson and 
Ted Braden, of course, um, haven't read it, so I can't really speak on it. Um, and the other ones I haven't read either, like the, uh, the one about Walt Rika or Rekka. Uh, haven't read it. Probably won't read that one. Um, <laughs> Drew Beeson's book, I might at some point, just because I think his heart's in the right place. Um, you know, but uh, I haven't read those ones yet, but I'm open to it. What about uh, Martin Andrade's Finding D.B. Cooper, Chasing the Last Lead? Oh, I have not read that one, actually. You haven't read that? I haven't read it. I'm ashamed of you. <laughs> yeah. Well, so uh, I've read a lot of stuff that he's posted. I think he either posted on the Mountain News a lot or he had his own website that he hosted D.B. Cooper information on. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, he, he did have his own blog. He's. I think it's still up. But I don't believe he posts very much on there. Yeah, that's unfortunate. You know, I always thought he was a, like the way that he presented the information. You know, he tried to remain as objective as possible. And for me, that's a big thing, right? Objectivity. If, you know, it's impossible to ever be truly objective because you're, you know, your writing is informed by your personal opinions. And there's certain ways you can word things to where, you know, we can still parse through the information and see probably what you believe or how you feel and oh, certainly uh and bruce he's actually a he's very talented at at remaining uh, as objective as possible um and so i don't want people thinking like well he says the fbi is in on it in his book eh, you know you could maybe infer that but um andrade is that how you pronounce his last name andrade andrade uh he's a great writer too, you know, very objective. Um, I saw that I think he was supportive of a, a suspect now, um, which is interesting, but uh, for a long time, uh, I'm not sure what his position on that was. Um, and I just read his, his blog posts and stuff. And I, I would love to read that book. I, there's so many of them out there now. It's hard to keep them all straight. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. I, I have a lot of respect for Marty. I think he's a super sharp guy and his book uh, if I come across someone who's like, eh, I'm not sure if he survived the jump or I definitely think he died in the jump right away. I'm like, you got to take a look at, at Marty's book because he does such a great analysis of the survivability of that jump. And when I read his book, I was like, from there, hundred percent, he survived the jump. <laughs> totally. <laughs> I'll have to, yeah, you know, I'll have to look into that. I know I have the book in my mind's eye. I know exactly what it looks like. It has the, it's greenish. It has the map on the front. I'm colorblind. So maybe it's, <laughs> maybe it's blue, <laughs> but it has the map of Southwestern Washington superimposed on the front. Um, so I, I definitely know the book, um, but I can't, can't definitively state whether or not I read it. So I'm just going to say I haven't, um, but not out of any, you know, out of any uh, disrespect uh, for Mr. Andrade. I, th I think he's a wonderful writer and uh, I'll have to add it to the list, the ever-growing list of uh, D.B. Cooper books. I read the one by, uh, I'm drawing a blank on his name, but it's the one uh, Last Master Outlaw. I did read that one. Um, uh, Thomas Colbert. Thomas Colbert, that's right. Um, oh, <laughs> sorry, I forgot. I read another D.B. Cooper book a number of years ago. Um, D.B. Cooper, The Real McCoy. I always forget about that one. So that's another one. Boy, of I wish I would have bought a thick stack of those books, too. I think I Are paid dollars for mine. Oh, yeah. Oh, man. I think I might still have a copy of that laying around. I'll have to check through my stuff. If I have one, uh, 
yeah, uh, we'll be in further contact. <laughs> I'll, <laughs> I mean, I'll pop it in the mail or something, but uh, if you haven't read it, but anyway, so I, I did read that one um, and Last Master Outlaw. So those are just two more that just came to my mind or whatever. I think it's interesting that you like the Tucson Himmelsbach book because I find myself, I won't recommend those books to new people because they're pre-internet. And so I think if you're coming into this case and you don't know absolutely everything or you want to know exactly what Himmelsbach said, uh, I want to recommend a book that was written after the creation of the internet. We see, we might differ here a little bit because for me, I want the books that are as close to the actual event as possible because over time, you know, things get left out, little bits of information get omitted. Um, so for me, I would, I might recommend D.B. Cooper Dead or Alive because it's not a daunting thing, you know, like it's, it's a pretty slim book. I, it it is a short a- book. And like you said, it has a lot of facts. It has, interestingly, a list of the serial numbers of oh, the money. Yeah, that is a lot of the book too. It's like the whole last 20 pages. <laughs> 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 and uh, there are interview details and hijacking details that I think were released to the public for the first time in that book. Yeah. So I do think that's interesting, but I would reserve those books for the hardcore crowd. Could be too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's an, it's interesting, like for people that, you know, for the uninitiated or whatever um, it's tough, you know, like I think people, you know, I think I know that there's books that people will enjoy or that might get people interested in it. Um, I the another, you know, angle to it is like I try to especially when I talk to folks about D.B. Cooper, of course, I throw in my own opinions. But if there's ever anybody that is like, oh, I'm new here, I don't know much about this. Can you explain it to me? You know, uh, <laughs> I always try to be objective. Um, so that, of course, that's going to factor into it, too, like if you recommend somebody, you know, a book that is based on a suspect, you know, and it's trying to persuade the reader that it's this suspect, then that might kind of color the, uh, the reader's viewpoint a little bit. So they might go into the D.B. Cooper case. And I think there's a lot of people out there like that, that will read a book like Last Mount Master Outlaw or a different book or any book that is, uh, you know, claiming that a suspect is D.B. Cooper and then that'll kind of be their first suspect and then maybe they'll move off of it. Maybe they won't or whatever. But uh, so I probably wouldn't recommend a book like that. But I think, too, the Jeffrey Gray book would be a good place to start because it, it it's written really well. And there is that personal narrative part of it, too. Um, I think the Jeffrey Gray book is a great place to start. Yeah. You know, that might be really the place to start because um, he does even though, you know, Tussauds book, which was published in 87 or 88, even though it does have a lot of those interviews and like things that you don't really see elsewhere a lot. um, I think Skyjack uses that as a, as a reference material. So I think a lot of that is talked about in Skyjack as well. So you could probably get that same information in that book. You make a great point, Jimmy, about people coming into the case through a suspect book. Because the first book I read was Skyjack, which sort of leads you towards Kenny Christensen. Yeah. And yeah. then, you know, <laughs> when I read that book, it had been out, oh, it'd probably been out three or four years by the time I read it. And in it, he's like, yeah, this guy I was working with, he's not working with me anymore because he says he's going to write his own book. 
And so when I oh, finished wow, Skyjack, yeah. I was like, okay, I got to find that book, uh, <laughs> get on Amazon into the blast. And I read that book and boom, it's Kenny Christensen. I'm, yeah, yeah, I'm positive. Yeah. Kenny Christensen <laughs> is DB Cooper. And then I got on uh, the drop zone and I was like, I saw like, I think it was Georgia and Bruce Smith had just torn it apart. And I was like, well, if it's not Kenny Christensen, then what the heck is going on? <laughs> yeah. And I yeah. got further into it from there. But I think a lot of people, to your point, will read that one book and, oh, yeah, it, it was Walter Recca. Oh, yeah, it was McCoy. Uh, oh, yeah, it was Kenny Christensen or Ted Braden. And right. their their invest their personal investigation into DB Cooper stops there because they're comfortable knowing that's right. who it was. Absolutely, yeah. And then people kind of fall into that confirmation bias a little bit, where they they're only going to seek out information that confirms what they already believe to be true. Right? They already think they know who it is, so they're not going to read uh, people that are <laughs> presenting information or their own opinions that differ from that they're going to tend to look for uh things that may reiterate what they already believe um and so i mean and then too like a lot of people like honestly probably don't find their way into the case by picking up a book you know definitely today way more common is that people you know on the drop zone back in those days people that was you know the drop zone became popular right kind of as National Geographic uh, did the Decoded episode where they talk about Kenny Christensen. Um, I mean, it had been around for a while, but it exploded in population after that uh, National Geographic, or I, I don't remember if it was that, maybe a bit Discovery, um, that is the episode on Kenny Christensen. And so a lot of people find their way into the case through the Netflix documentary or, you know, various different documentaries that have been done over the years. And so in those, you know, they usually, you know, present kind of the more um, romantic or more interesting uh, angles to the story. So they usually kind of have a suspect they move toward. Um, and so people that, you know, watch those documentaries and then come into the case are like, what's the mystery? I think it's uh, so-and-so, right? And it's because they watch the documentary. And so that kind of, again, colors their viewpoint on who D.B. Cooper is. But uh, yeah. Yeah. And not not to bash anyone, but those are the worst people to, oh, yeah. to, to deal with. I mean, the, the recent Rackstraw piece on the Netflix thing, and then Dan Greider's YouTube video mm. about McCoy. Yeah. Both of those. It was just like all of a sudden I got unsolicited emails. Like, why do you keep doing the show when it was obviously McCoy or it was obviously oh, Rackstraw? Yeah. yeah. And it's like those two suspects in particular, I just feel like you don't know the case. I, if I have you're a theory on that. one of those two. Let's hear it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's probably the people that are... <laughs> pushing each suspect and responsible for the content that are sending you emails i'm, I'm teasing but uh you know db cooper world is kind of strange you know the vortex uh, people feel very uh passionate about that so you know like you said i don't want to disparage anybody or or talk anybody's content down you know i can do that in private but this is a public forum so i'm 
going to give them the benefit of the doubt. But uh, yeah, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised if you were getting emails from from people that were real and thick with or in real thick with uh, each of those respective suspects. But yeah, man, people watch those and they just they stick to that. Right. Like they come for you. And they're like, you know, it's definitely Richard McCoy. And like, I don't understand. Like or they just use the same tone, like in every post of like. I think it's this person. And it's like, how many accounts do you have? You have the same mistakes in your writing, like for all these different people that you say you are, all these different accounts. Funny, all of them put two spaces after the last letter, then the period, then no space and start the next sentence or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, that definitely happens in the Cooper world. It's, it's, very, it's very weird. There's a it lot of people. like fake online personas. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's rampant, you know, and the other thing about it, too, I'm, you know, I don't, you know, the psychology of the Cooper Vortex, you know, mainstays like the or the, the cast of characters in a way is almost more fascinating or equally fascinating, not to me, really, but it is very fascinating, like the types of people that that are attracted to the D.B. Cooper mystery specifically. It's generally people that aren't into other true crimes, you know, uh, they just somehow end up collecting around the D.B. Cooper case, and it draws in a pretty interesting cast of characters. I am very interested in that as well. I mean, you listen to the opening of the show, and yeah. the show is about the people trying to solve this case. Yeah, yep. And it's, it, it's a completely self-selecting group. No one is here because they're forced to to continue their research on the db cooper case well actually that's not true i guess you could make an argument for people like joe weber or uh mm -hmm. Rekha's niece or the foremans who were sort of sucked into the vortex through someone else yeah it's really interesting you know i just made this point the other day somebody was talking about a, a newer suspect that they were developing and one of the things that is true in every case with every suspect that has ever been presented and, you know, in an open forum or on an open platform or every suspect that's ever gained any media traction, everyone has a whole list of family members and friends that think that it could be them. And so I, I've always thought, like, as soon as somebody's like, ah, I don't think my relative did it. That's the suspect I'm going to go to, right? Because it's like, oh, hey, here's an outlier. You know, every other suspect, their whole family is like, yeah, I think they could have been him. It's like, I don't know. It's just kind of an interesting thing, right? It's like, what is the psychology where, you know, your dead loved one having been D.B. Cooper is an interesting, you know, it's that would be a plausible for you, you know, like that's, every member of my family that's dead, I could take one look at them and be like, no, that's not them. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I think it's an attractive proposition, but that gets into the psychology, I think, of, of who people believe D.B. Cooper was versus who he, in all actuality, probably was, you know? Yeah, I, I think we could talk about that for hours because, you know, you get into confessions and also D.B. Cooper is cool. You're not you're not Absolutely. saying, oh, you know what? I think my grandpa could have been the Zodiac killer. Isn't that neat? <laughs> right. Nobody says that. Nope. There's not a whole lot of people. I mean, there are some people that that do claim things like that, but it is it pales in comparison to the D.B. Cooper thing. I mean, there's been 
you know, just parsing through the FBI documents, you know, the 302s, I mean, how many people said that their friend or their lover or their spouse or their ex-spouse, I mean, it was hundreds, if not thousands of people that said that they know who it is, that they think it's this person. Uh, and a lot of the times it was people that were like still friends. Uh, they weren't estranged from their family member. So it's like, these people are like calling the FBI on their brother thinking that they're an airplane hijacker. But, you know, the deceased spouse angle or de deceased loved one angle is probably a whole different psychology altogether. You know, it might give their lives uh, more meaning in some way. You know, if they're this infamous hijacker, um, then, yeah, maybe, you know, and I'm not a psychologist, of course, and I, I don't have a, any kind of medical background at all. So this is just pure speculation. But it may it may make that person more interesting in a way and it, they might gravitate toward it you know given the robin hood kind of uh media portrayal of of dan cooper so it might make it attractive in some in some form you said something really interesting jimmy that i i instantly thought was 100 percent true that the the people in the db cooper community most of them aren't necessarily true crime fans myself no. included yeah, myself included either. I mean, I, I have a little bit of an interest in it, you know, but it's, I wouldn't call myself a true crime fanatic, you know, like, because there's people that are very, very into it. And I'm not one of them. What do you think it is about the D.B. Cooper case that attracts primarily men um, who are not <laughs> true crime fans? Oh, boy. Um, I could probably wax poetic about this forever or attempt to anyway. Um, Go on. <laughs> I think there's so much, you know, and as I've gotten older, because um, I really, you know, in a way, kind of grew up with D.B. Cooper. And there's this weird intersection of as, you know, if, if that's true in anyone else's case, they might be able to speak to it as well. But uh, there's this thing where as your worldview changes, your impression of who this guy was kind of changes as well and i think you know based on that based on your worldview and what you think is cool or what you think is socially okay um i think that that is kind of why db cooper has become this this person of intrigue um for like you said predominantly males um especially males of a certain age uh, tends to be, you know, people that are a little older in the D.B. Cooper crowd. Um, but one of the things that I think is the reason, I mean, and there's, I have ideas on why D.B. Cooper has been this enduring figure, of course, but, you know, on to the why in the sleuthing community, D.B. Cooper is kind of this persistent, uh, barren figure. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with how, db cooper is portrayed you know and the context is everything in this you know like at the time you know the the way that things were in the united states uh especially in the pacific northwest where db cooper gained the most traction um you know in the press or whatever uh things weren't very good in the Pacific Northwest in 1971. You had the economic downturn in Seattle after Boeing. You have the billboard, the infamous billboard that says, will the last person leaving Seattle turn out the lights? And so I think D.B. Cooper kind of became um, 
almost like a euphemism for all of these feelings that people had uh, in a way. But also, I mean, the fact that he's always portrayed as being calm, cool and collect. And, you know, he's he also fits a lot of these societal uh, fixations that we have or or, uh, you know, uh, beliefs in our beauty standards and things. I think it even touches on that. You have this guy, he's tall, he's dark, you know, they don't say he's handsome. In fact, I think somebody may have been Tina Mucklow even said, you know, the sketch doesn't capture his nastiness, but I mean, you look at the sketch. Bill Mitchell said geeky old guy. (laughs) There you go. Right. But when you look at the sketch, I didn't know that he said that. That's really interesting. Um, When you look at the sketches, I mean, that doesn't really, you know, that doesn't look like a geeky old guy in the sketch. It looks like a handsome guy with olive skin. He's six feet tall and he's in control. And I think that that's another thing that makes him relatable is that a lot of people feel like they don't have control of their lives. Maybe they don't know that directly, or maybe that's not something that they sit there and they think, you know, I'm not in control of my life, but it's that thing that's in the back of their head, you know, and here's a guy who was fed up with the system. Right. And I think this is the way that it's commonly touched on in the media is that db cooper part of it was about the money but part of it was about the fact that he was really upset with whatever circumstances that were out of his control and so he did something about it he didn't hurt anyone you know and this is again this is kind of the narrative as the way it's been presented in newspaper and tv and things um so you know i've rattled on about this forever now but uh basically the fact that nobody died the fact that he was tall and dark and, you know, that common thing with tall, dark, handsome, it's been a part of, you know, our pop culture, uh, kind of male beauty standards forever. Um, and so you have that, and then you have the aspect of he was reportedly very well-mannered and very polite. So you have this cunning hero who only wants some money. He doesn't want to hurt anybody. And then, you know, again, this, those are not my beliefs, but this is the way that he's going to portray it. Uh, and then to top it all off, uh, he's a daredevil too, right? He's going to lower these stairs with this bag of money and he's going to jump out. I mean, it doesn't get any more attractive than that. Not to me anyway. I think that's what kind of draws me to it too. It's like, whoa, he's going to jump out of the back of the plane and he does it right. And then he's never seen again. You know, had he been caught or had they found his body right away? a lot of that attraction goes away because then he's human, you know, then he's a human being, but right now he's just a phantom. He's never seen. He's never heard from again. No one knows where he came from. He doesn't hurt anyone physically, psychologically he did, but physically not at all. And so I think those are the things that make him attractive. You know, I think we have a, a preoccupation in our society with bank robbers and, and, people of that ilk, right? Like robbers and white collar criminals and these cunning people like that who get away with, you know, this perfect crime. And I think that those are kind of the the things around D.B. Cooper that have made him an enduring, um, you know, attractive uh, storyline for for males, especially. If he had done his hijacking with a knife to the throat of a stewardess instead of a bomb in a briefcase. Do you think he would be glamorized today? No, 
no, not nearly as much. And, and, you know, we can get into some of that other stuff too. I think that it's, it's no small thing that he's commonly believed to have been a Caucasian male as well. And the fact that he may not have been, in fact, he wasn't really described as being Caucasian. He was, you know, I mean, we could get into the specifics of that, but um, so you have that too. And the fact that he used the bomb, right? Cause that's, that's ingenious. It takes a, a level of technical proficiency. You have, you can't just be, you know, um, some guy, right. You have to be able to be intelligent enough to, to build a bomb. And so that also makes it attractive and it makes it relatively impersonal too, because it's a somewhat impersonal way of killing people or threatening to kill people a knife to the throat it's way too synonymous with terrorism and terrorists and terror. And so, and that sparks genuine fear in people. And, uh, and the stewardesses and the pilots definitely did have that genuine fear. But when you're that far removed from it to where you're just an observer on the outside reading about it, it, all, it feels like, well, they weren't really in danger. The bomb probably wasn't even real anyway. So they were fine. And so that kind of makes it, and our brains do that math on their own because we want him we don't want him to be, have been a real bad guy. We want him to have been, you know, guy who's just a little down on his luck and uh, he did this daredevil stunt and got away with it. Um, but yeah, knife to throat, no way. No, then, then he's a real bad guy. I don't know why, you know, I don't know what the psychological uh, dividing <laughs> line is, but when it gets personal and you put the knife to the throat, then, then things change a little bit. Uh, I agree. As, as soon as I'm imagining Cooper with a knife to the throat of a stewardess, I'm I'm like, let's go get that guy. <laughs> right. Like, not cool. <laughs> not cool. Right. <laughs> Somehow the bomb, it's like, you know, it it takes a level of skill to build it. And then we can endlessly prattle and bandy back and forth. Well, was it real? Was it not real? But even, as soon as you introduce the fact that it may not have been real, then it takes an extra layer off of his bad guy you know, off of him being bad. And then you peel back another layer. So it's like, well, the bomb probably wasn't real anyway. So, you know, then suddenly you have a guy who's just kind of down on his luck. Yeah, he threatened people, but he didn't really threaten them. And so, you know, he played out this fantasy where he had that one big score and got away and he jumped out the back like a daredevil. But when you bring in, you know, or if he had, you know, brought a gun aboard and fired shots off or something, that changes it too. And there were hijackers that tried things like that and probably haven't heard of them. Most people, right? I mean, definitely. One thing about the bomb I'll say though, is obviously when you hear that someone on the plane has a bomb, it's terrifying uh, without a doubt, but Cooper was able to, to calm them because they were, they were, they seemed to be a lot more comfortable around him Afterward, I mean, Tina's sitting next to him lighting his cigarettes. Um, mm. Even after the passengers get off, Tina was much more concerned about being sucked out of the aircraft mm -hmm. with the door open than she was about the bomb. So with the bomb versus a gun or a knife, if, if you're holding me hostage, Jimmy, and you've got a gun in your hand and it keeps moving around, no matter what, I'm never going to be comfortable. But if you had a bomb... And then you started to act cool. I think that at a certain point I would be comfortable around you knowing that you weren't going to activate that bomb. It's a brilliant and, observation. Yes. And I think that's what Cooper was able to do. Yeah, that is a fantastic insight. It's, I, that's exactly right, I, in my opinion. Uh, you know, I, I, the part of the bomb, too, is it requires some 
some technical things to make it work. And most people, you know, we know what a gun is, you know, and it's dangerous, but a bomb, it's kind of this nebulous thing, you know, is it, well, is it dynamite? What sets off dynamite? Well, I don't really know. You know, most regular working class people don't know a whole lot about explosives. And so, you know, he is the control variable in that equation because he said, I touch this wire and we all be dead is the language that uh, Florence Schaffner used on Unsolved Mysteries uh, years later. You know, so you have this person who, you know, he has to touch these things together. It's in a briefcase. You know, they only ever saw it for a second. The rest of the time, the briefcase was mostly closed with his hand in there. And so, yeah, you know, a gun also feels a lot less controlled. It feels more impulsive. You know, like he's just pulling this gun out and he could, it's so easy to fire off around. But since we don't know how easy or not easy it is to set this ordinance off, you know, there's that trust that you build or that they probably built psychologically because he hadn't done it yet. And they, they didn't have their face in a gun, you know, or a gun wasn't stuck in their face. And so even though it was kind of, you know, metaphorically or even, even literally, uh, you know, it's still the, the, the fact that they could not really see it the whole time. And the fact that it required Cooper to detonate it, um, I think adds a whole different layer to it. All right. Let's get into what you know about the case. Are you All ready? right. Sure. Yeah, let's do it. Let, let's start with the bomb. Uh, was the bomb real, Jimmy? Oh boy. Uh, I, you know, it can't be known, of course. And for a lot of this stuff, too, you know, this is just my speculation. I don't think it can be known. Uh, and there's two schools of thought, really, or more. But there's kind of two overarching ways of, of looking at, at D.B. Cooper. Um, and I think depending on which way you want to view who he was and what his motivations were, um, that can dictate you know, whether the bomb was real or not, you know, if you buy in a little more to the, to the narrative that's been portrayed of him being calm and having total control of the situation, then in order to have total control of the situation, he would have to be 100% confident that it's not going to go off. And so to be 100% confident, it's not going to go off. Uh, it would need to be fake. But if you think he was more of a, you know, of a person that was completely mentally unstable, uh, then he it very well may have been, uh, you know, a, a live bomb. Um, I think, and I kind of am divided by my own logic here because I, I don't really know, you know, but I would say, you know, gun to my head, no pun intended here. Uh, I would say it was probably, hmm, you know, I would, I've gone back and forth on this a lot. And in recent times, I really thought, well, maybe we should assume that it was real, you know, because then the stakes are raised considerably. I think it's almost taken for granted at this point that it wasn't real. And that's just based on, you know, a momentary glance by one of the stewardesses, you know, uh, and other people saying, well, dynamite wasn't, it's not read like that. Well, actually, sometimes it is. Uh, I would say the bomb was probably real if I, you know. Bottom line, I, I would think that that it probably was. I assume that it was, and that informs my belief on the rest of who Dan Cooper is. You got to push your chips one way or the other. You're pushing them to the bombs real. I'm gonna push them to the bombs real, but like I said, I go back and forth on it. It very, you know, it's very possible that it may have been fake. 
it would make sense for it to be fake. But, uh, you know, for, for tonight, I think it, it's probably real. I, I've gone from being 100% certain the bomb was fake to 95% certain <laughs> the bomb was fake. And yeah. these days, I'm going to say I'm at 80% the bomb was fake because I've heard, like yours and, and others, a lot of good arguments for why it would be real. Yeah, and really the bomb being real or not, it, this is like a good entry point into like the 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 bigger pieces of the case. Because whether the bomb is real or not, it's important, but the passengers believed it was real. Or not the passengers, but the stewardesses believed it was real. Well, you the can pilots... never question the authenticity of a bomb on a plane. Right, right. And so even if it's not, you know, it's almost immaterial because everyone believes it is. And so, you know, or everybody that that is important in the story believes that it is. And of course, some of the FBI in the ground thought it wasn't, uh, you know, oh, that's just some road flares. I think Himmelsbach said or thought that's, you know, his partner said or something. Uh, but for all the key players, they, they had to assume it was real. You've mentioned Cooper being in control. And the, the stewardesses commented that he was calm, cool, and collected, never unfriendly, and always polite. Very interesting way to describe a hijacker, and also really unique behavior for a hijacker, especially if we look at the copycats. Right. What do you think that tells us about who Cooper was? Uh, I think, well, and so... This is kind of interesting. I was just thinking about this earlier. So he was described as being uh, polite. Uh, Florence Schaffner was the stewardess on uh, the Walter Cronkite program, I believe, uh, during those first rounds of, of press coverage of the hijacking. Um, and she said, well, he actually was rather nice. But there are some things that I think kind of point away from that a little bit. There are some times where he broke character, <laughs> right? Like where he is angry that the the plane is taking too long to refuel. And he's not just, you know, starting to get a little more stern. Uh, no, he's smashing his hands together saying, you know, he's swearing and saying, it doesn't take this long, you know? So there's those instances where, you know, he's he, he may be well-mannered, but as far as being nice, um, I'm not sh sure that he was especially nice based on some of the things that took place, you know, like uh, there's that instance and there's a couple other things, but for argument's sake, he was pretty nice for a hijacker. He didn't, you know, grab anybody. He didn't want the passengers to know. Uh, he didn't want to panic. And that was, of course, strategic, but also, you know, because uh, mostly strategic on his end because he didn't want a, people to try to rush him in the back of the plane. There's a million different reasons. But the fact that he was polite and was well-mannered, I think it points to his abilities as a manipulator more than anything else. I think uh, the fact that, and the fact that he also cared deeply about what the stewardesses in particular and the pilots and perhaps the FBI thought about him. And so by being well-mannered and by being polite while threatening to kill a bunch of people, I think is very manipulative. And it also reflects uh, 
a at least some concern with the way that he's being perceived. And I go back to the stewardesses. I think Dan Cooper really cared about how the stewardesses saw him. That's interesting. Why do you think that? The main thing that really makes me think that he cared deeply about the way that he was being viewed uh, is because, again, you have this guy who is threatening to kill people, a lot of people. You have the people aboard the aircraft, but you also have the people down below. We don't know what's going to happen when this bomb goes off. What's it going to hit down on the ground? Are we going to be over woodland in a residential little borough? Uh, Are we going to be near Seattle where it could have catastrophic implications? I think that Cooper, it was very important for him because the situation, the control that he has over the the airplane, it's more of an illusion than anything else. Because in the situation, he has some of the control, you know, but ultimately the pilots are the one flying the plane. And so they have a lot of control too. But for Cooper, who was polite and well-mannered, there are those things, but also you have the part about how he tries to give change back to the stewardess. I think these are things that he does not because he's a genuinely good person, but because again, he's threatening to kill people. So how good of a guy could he really be? And he's extorting $200,000 from the bank. So this is not, these are not the actions of a good person. So when you juxtapose that against, uh, you know, oh, yes, please, ma'am. Oh, yes, I'll, uh, here's the change back from the drink. And then he reaches into the bank bag and, and tries to give uh, the stewardesses some of the money. I think, again, that points more to him caring about the way that they see him than it does him being a genuinely good person. I think he may have been even a little bit remorseful um, and him worrying about the way he's being perceived would likely lead to him feeling remorse. Lastly, there's an interesting thing in the Richard Tussa book. Um, Dan Cooper gave a little wave the last time that he ever saw Tina Mucklow. And I think that there, it's interesting. It's a, it's an interesting thing to do in that setting. Why would he do that? Why would he, you know, was it reactionary? Uh, Was it, he kind of forgot where he was for a moment or was it because he felt bad and he kind of gave a little wave like goodbye (laughs) i'm not going to see you again i don't think it was a taunt he didn't taunt them at any other point and i think in that little wave is a lot of humanity um and it shows that if he wasn't a good person you know before the hijacking he wanted to be a good person and he cared about the way that he was seen um and again that's more speculation on my end, but I do, I do think that he cared, cared deeply about the way that the stewardesses and the pilots saw him. Uh, He never admitted if he didn't know something, if he was unsure of something, uh, he never asked any questions. Um, Surely he had many. I mean, was he an expert in hijacking? I mean, you, you have to think that there was things that weren't going according to plan, but he never let that take over. And I think, yeah, I think that 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 shows at least a little bit that he did care about the way people saw him. What do you think about his age? Because if if you and I are sitting around and we hear a story on the news that so-and-so hijacked this, I assume you and I are both going to think it's a guy in his mid-20s. Cooper is said to be mid to late 40s. 
that's a really odd age for a daring crime. It is. It is pretty odd. I do believe there was another gentleman. I don't believe uh, there's a few, actually. Um, first of all, there's Frederick Hahnemann, uh, another hijacker who is similar to, to D.B. Cooper in a number of ways. And I'm sure you, you Darren, are familiar with who he is. I'm but, familiar uh, with him. <laughs> right. And, and he was uh, similar in age. I think he was almost exactly the age that Cooper was described as. Matter of fact, I mean, even further, he looked like the sketch. He fit the physical description to the letter. He was, he was uh, a Latin man of some Caucasian uh, lineage as well. Um, you know, he was about six feet tall, he was olive skin, uh, brown eyes. Uh, so there are examples uh, of hijackers in particular who are that age. Um, and I think, you know, let, rather than it being like, well, this is something a young person does. Uh, I think a lot of it has to do with, you know, kind of the random nature of it. Of course, airplane hijackings, at least domestically, rarely ever happen anymore, or else we might have a much bigger sample size by now. Um, and so, you know, those things I can't speak on too much. They do seem a little bit incidental as far as, you know, this is something a young person would do. Um, so there was a hijacker right before uh, Dan Cooper. I don't remember his name, but was it he LaPointe was, was the first It could have one? been LaPointe. It could have been him. Um, but he was also the one that I'm thinking of. Uh, he was tackled. He was hit over the head with an axe. <laughs> this was in uh, Canada, I believe. Um, I could be getting them confused. I'm, see, I'm not an expert on all the hijackings, but I have a passing familiarity with the, the important ones in the case. I get my copycats mixed up all the time. I, I said <laughs> so-and-so was the guy that got hit by the axe and so-and-so was the cheeseburger guy. And I get oh, corrected yeah, all the time. Yeah, the cheeseburger guy. Yeah, him. Cheeseburger a, guy is Glenn Tripp. Glenn Tripp. Okay, very cool. Yeah, it's good education for me. I've heard of the cheeseburger guy. I think I heard about it from Himmelsbach uh, in his book. He talks about it because, you know, he had a somewhat low opinion of who D.B. Cooper was. And so, you know, he, of course, draws comparison to him, right? Like, because, oh, he's just crazy. You know, we had a guy looking for a hamburger the other day, you know, that kind of thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, as far as the age, uh, you know, I think there's little doubt in my mind that he was the age that they described him as. And I think there's a variety of reasons why somebody in their mid 40s uh, would be pushed or felt that they were pushed to something as, as potentially catastrophic as, as what Dan Cooper did. You know, it's an interesting age, the mid forties. Uh, a lot of people, you know, if they start to deteriorate a little bit mentally, maybe if they haven't accomplished what they thought that they would, maybe if they had built up a bunch of equity in a company or something, as far as, you know, work equity, uh, maybe if they had worked all kinds of different jobs and they could never get ahead, things like that. And so at that point, you know, some people, start to crack, I think, after a prolonged period of time. And we don't know, you know, he may have had a history of mental illness. He may have came from people that had mental illnesses. We just don't know. And there's so much that we don't know. But there's no doubt. Well, there is some doubt, of course, a healthy amount. Uh, I do believe that, that he was probably as described. They were pretty specific. Um, there's only a couple outliers in the eyewitnesses 
most of them said mid forties. And, and so, you know, and then somebody, I can't remember who, uh, which eyewitness said 50 and then Hal Williams, um, who was either the gate agent or the ticketing agent said 36 or 36 to 38 or something like that. So you do have those two folks, but Tina, who sat next to, and, and Williams only saw Cooper for a second. Uh, Mucklow is the witness that I listened to the most. She spent four hours next to Dan Cooper or more, and she said mid-40s. And, and so I, that's what I believe on that, mid-40s. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Tina says, says, mid, says mid-40s, and then Bill Mitchell says late-40s. And yeah, I really like Bill Mitchell's testimony because he gets a look at Cooper like many others did, but nobody else had a reason at all to pay attention to him. They just, it was just another guy in a business suit. I didn't pay attention at all, but Bill Mitchell looked at him and was jealous that Tina was giving this guy attention because he was a young college guy. And, yep. and Tina was a smoke show. Yep. So <laughs> yeah. he was. was like, what the heck is this geeky old guy doing getting all this attention from her? So he <laughs> he got at least one good look at him to mm-hmm. think like, what is up with this guy? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing about it that doesn't get talked about a lot, you know, and I have you know, for everything about the case, I kind of have a, a theory I've developed or an opinion at the very least, not like that's a difficult thing to, to come up with. But uh, I think that Cooper was definitely a middle-aged guy. And one of the reasons I believe this, and probably the main reason, you know, and I, we can get into the stewardesses and stuff too, at some point. Um, but Tina Mucklow was 20, what, 22 at the time? Yeah, 22. A, a 22-year-old female. Now, for Robert Rackstraw in particular, who was, he had just turned 27. He'd only been 27 for a month. That's four years difference in age between her and Robert Rackstraw. You know, how common is it going to be to sit next to somebody that is a few years older than you and you think, oh my goodness, I'm, I thought you were 50. Like, no, it's just not believable at all. You know, and women, you know, and I, I don't mean to speak for women. Uh, I think they have a better gauge of these things as well, especially 100%, for men. I totally agree. They're they're constantly assessing. Unfortunately, um, especially you know back then, every man that they come into contact with, they have to immediately run a check through like fifty different things. Uh, and one of those things is they have to assess the threat level. Um, and one of those factors is age. You know, uh, how old is this person? How much of a threat to me could this person be? And so their power, especially because Tina was already on high alert, she was so alert that she had the presence of mind to jot down the things that happened within minutes of the hijacking. She was in the cockpit, you know, with. As soon as she was sent to the cockpit, she was jotting things down, taking notes. She knew that she was going to be asked to describe this guy. And so she was very aware and she was a very important witness, the most important witness. Without her, we don't have a clue who the guy is. Uh, And so, you know, most of what we know about the entire case comes from Tina Mucklow. 
And so if you have faith that she saw him tying the bank bag around his waist or arbitrary facts like that, if you give her the benefit of the doubt there, it doesn't make any logical sense to say, oh, yeah, but people are mistaken all the time. I'm sure that she was just mistaken. It's like, you know, like people that the McCoy people do this a lot, uh, you know, like, oh, well, yeah, I'm sure, that, you know, how I how reliable are eyewitness testimony anyway? It's like, OK, well, we don't have flight recorder data. So if she is totally off base and incorrect about that, well, what can we believe then? Where do we start? You know, she must have been wrong about a lot more, I would think. Uh, and so anyway, um, I believe her, her description and I believe the age. L let me ask you this, Jimmy, excluding costumes. How many times have you worn makeup in your life? Never. Never. Okay. Uh, it would be the same for me also. Right. If I put makeup on and sat next to a 22 year old woman who at the very least has likely been wearing makeup every day for about four years, more likely six or mm -hmm. eight. Good point. How likely would she be able to tell if I was wearing makeup? She would know right away. You know? Right away. <laughs> she would know right away. She's uh, sitting close enough to light his cigarettes for him. You're she telling studying she the man. notice 1971 makeup that you could get over the counter. It's not it's, like yeah. some professional Hollywood thing. This Even go absurd. look at a Hollywood movie from 71. Yep. How, how great is the makeup in that movie? And can you tell me if that actor is wearing makeup? Well, yeah, and the whole notion, right? It's just absurd. It's, a, it's an invented counterpoint to try to explain why, you know, and this, this is the problem with a lot of these suspects, you know, the commonly debated ones. They all have to have some mechanism to explain some big discrepancy, you know, like with uh, Richard McCoy. Oh, uh, Richard McCoy was a white guy that was 29 years old and had pale skin and blue eyes. Wow, well, well, he was wearing makeup or, you know, and he did wear makeup. And an accent and a lisp. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. We know that now. And that's a relatively new development as far as it being widely known. But, you know, we know he wore makeup on, you know, during his hijacking uh, and it looked terrible and it didn't fool anybody. So he was really good at wearing makeup when he was Dan Cooper. But then when he was uh, James Johnson, I think is the pseudonym he used during yep. the uh, the other hijack. Oh, suddenly he's terrible at it. And he wore a big stupid wig. Like, I mean, come on, man. Uh, it just doesn't make any logical sense, you know, and that goes to the whole McCoy thing, um, which I'm sure, you know, we'll get to that. But uh, as far as this is concerned, um, no, he wasn't wearing makeup. And the other part of it is, I believe the FBI asked the stewardess, I'm not sure which one, I, I think it was Tina, whether they believed he was wearing any type of disguise. Uh, and this is in the FBI 302s. And she said no, that she didn't only, believe Only that sunglasses. Oh, and only for part of the time. He had his sunglasses off in the beginning. He only put them on when they were taken off. He took them off again when they landed in SeaTac. He took them off. He put the sunglasses on after he passes the note. Right. Yep. Yep. Right as they're taking off. And then when they land, it, he has the cabin dimmed um, and he has the shades drawn. And so he doesn't need the sunglasses. So he takes them off. And I think that it's reasonable that part of it was a disguise. But honestly, I think he put the sunglasses on because they were taken off and they're going to be above the clouds when the sun was going down. Uh, I don't think he took many steps to, to obscure his identity at all. He didn't seem the least bit concerned about his, about disguising who he was. He definitely didn't. Let me ask you this. 
was this thoroughly planned out or was it done on a cocktail napkin that afternoon? Okay. Yeah. So now we're getting into some of the more interesting, like this, this is, and I differ, I break from, from people here in a big way. I don't think that he came up with it that afternoon, uh, but I don't think he had it meticulously planned out. I think a lot of it was improvised, a lot more of it than is commonly believed, because there's so many things that he couldn't possibly have accounted for. When he is boarding the plane, you know, first of all, this is the night before Thanksgiving. It's a milk run to Seattle from Portland. It's about a 20 minute flight, uh, 45 minute, 45 minute flight. In any case, it is a light journey that is done all the time. Uh, it's in the evening time, you know, he could not have known how many people were going to be on this plane. Uh, so that's important. So what if the plane is full? You know, does he not do it? Did he wait around till he got, you know, he's like, well, cause you couldn't, I mean, I, I presume it hasn't been mentioned anywhere. Maybe he asked how full it was. The ticket agent didn't remember him asking anything like that. So no, and it's debatable if he asked if it was a 727 or not. Exactly. And that and that's a whole different problem in the D.B. Cooper world, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, right, what we think. He couldn't have known how full the plane was going to be. And if he did, if it was full, why not get on the plane first? That way it secures your seat, right? What if somebody else sat in the back row? That changes everything. You know, then he can't sit back there and control the plane from the back. Things lined up for him in ways <laughs> that that made it perfectly conducive to it being what it was. I mean, how would he know that he was going to the crew that was going to comply? He would have no way of knowing that. Just a year or two before, there was a disastrous hijacking uh, where the FBI shot out the tires and the hijacker shot and killed one of the stewardesses or one of the hostages that they took uh, just a little while before that. One, one of the people that were part of the flight crew hit somebody over the back of the head with an axe. Like, he couldn't have known. He lucked out with the crew he got, you know, and you could, you could attribute that to skill, you know, by not letting the passengers know and by being calm. I'm not going to argue that fact. He, he was those things. But also the crew, the people in control of the aircraft complied with him in his every demand. What if the pilot was like, all right, folks, uh, we are being hijacked here. Then what? <laughs> like he he couldn't have known that they were going to comply and so and he couldn't have known you know how full the plane was going to be which is a point i already touched on but there's these all of these things that he cannot plan for then you have you know and there's a whole different psychological component to where you know i don't believe that db cooper was a master criminal i think he made tons of mistakes he made a, a lot of little mistakes but one very big mistake. Um, and that is that he got the money and he dug around in a little bit. And then he let the passengers off before the parachutes were on the plane. <laughs> and so that is a huge tactical mistake. You know, like th at that time, the cockpit was unsecured. They could have escaped through the window, the, the crew in the front of the plane. Tina Mucklow, uh, Florence Schaffner was gone. She got off the plane uh, before Tina did, he sends Tina out to get the parachutes. It's just him with the bomb and the money and pilots he can't see. It's just a tactical mistake. But again, 
you know, at that point, a different crew may have exited through the window and then he would have been caught and we wouldn't even know who DB Cooper was. So, well, that's where the bomb being real really comes into play. Right. Right. And so, no, you know, and there's a million little reasons why I don't think that he had it masterfully planned out. There's the whole bit about how he probably wanted to jump as soon as the plane got to altitude, uh, how he fumbled with the stairs and couldn't get them down, how he had to be shown how to do it. Um, those are inconvenient for those. And I want to believe that he was this amazing, <laughs> masterful criminal, too. I do. I did for a long time until I read the FBI 302s and it changed the way I saw him. Um, unfortunately, right. For my little fantasy about who DB Cooper was and the fact that, you know, he, he pulled off this amazing hijacking and he didn't hurt anyone, but the fact that he, he fumbled with the stairs and I've, I've went back and forth with people about this. Uh, well, no, he didn't. He knew how to do it, but no, he didn't. He had to be shown how to do it. And it took him 25 minutes to get him down. He couldn't have possibly accounted for where he was at when he jumped out of the plane. He didn't, you know, he didn't choose the gear. He didn't bring it aboard the plane. He relied on people down below. He leaves so much to chance. Um, and so, no, I don't think that he meticulously planned it out. I think he had a kind of a general idea and, you know, it was, he, he knew the bigger beats, right? He knew that he was going to hijack a 727. He knew that he wasn't going to tell the passengers and that he was going to use a bomb. Uh, I think he knew he was going to say fly to Mexico. So those things, yes. But the rest of it, um, you know, to anyone thinking that the whole time he's just exerting this masterful force over the aircraft, it's a load of bunk. It's just it doesn't hold water because it's all out of his control. He doesn't know how people are going to react. He doesn't know if Billy Mitchell or uh William Mitchell is going to jump up from his seat and tackle him. So if any one of those things happens, uh, which he could not have accounted for, you would never heard of D.B. Cooper. All right. How did D.B. Cooper know that that plane could be jumped? How did he know the flight configuration? How did he know how long it would take to refuel that plane? But like you said, he also didn't know how to lower the aft stairs, which is a really odd combination of knowledge. I love this. I, you know, I uh, often wished people would ask me questions like this. <laughs> 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 I annoy everybody all the time talking about this stuff. Um, you know, like I said, it comes and goes. But uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, boy, any number of different ways. And again, you know, this is speculation. At this point, it cannot be known. But I think that rather than being a pilot, uh, although I'm not going to rule out the pilot thing, I think it is possible that that he was a pilot at some point in time. Um, there was a, 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 a man, oh, I had his name written down and then I, I didn't bring it in here. Um, he wrote a book about hijackers in the early 1970s. Is it called The Skyjacker? Yes, that's the one. Yes. Uh, I have that book. David Hubbard. Hubbard, right. Okay, David Hubbard. And so David Hubbard... um, I haven't read that book, by the way, but I did buy it for my collection. Very cool. It's not a great book. Uh, (laughs) So you're not missing out on much. But I felt it was worth a read. And there's two copies of it. There's two versions. There's like a first printing. And then seven or eight years later, 
um, they printed another one and there's a little addendum in there about D.B. Cooper. And that is such a difficult book to find. Um, I don't know how I ended up with a copy of it, uh, but I just randomly bought the book on the Internet. And then a while later, I found another copy at a thrift store and it didn't have that in it. Uh, And come to find out, it's pretty hard to get one that does have it in there. And it talks a little bit about his psychological profile of who he believed Dan Cooper was. And this is a guy that had worked extensively uh, with profiling the different hijackers, which was a tall order at the time because, you know, you had the, the political extremist hijackers Uh, And you didn't really have a whole lot of people like D.B. Cooper. And so there was a pretty small sample size because you can't say, you know, and this is some of the flaws in his research as well. And his research has a lot of flaws. He makes a lot of presumptions (laughs) that D.B. Cooper probably had a a mom that didn't like him very much, like stuff like this, where it's like, well, you know, is that rooted in science or are you just thinking that, you know, just because you strongly believe that doesn't mean that that's, you know, academically very responsible to put that in there. I think personally um, that the Boeing angle has not been as ruled out as people want to claim, right? Like, well, we looked at the Boeing engineer's tie and it doesn't have the particles on it. Okay. That's a Boeing engineer. What about the tool and die shop workers? You know, these were people that worked with metals. They made tools for working on planes and they and they repaired certain components of the planes um hundreds if not thousands of people worked in the boeing tool and die shop they would have had access to the different schematics used for the various airplanes um you know they would have had uh you know they worked for boeing they would have worked for boeing so if let's say dan cooper concocts this idea of you know, maybe he reads about another hijacker in the newspaper and it's like, that is a great idea. And he already is there, you know, working in the airline industry. Then all he has to do is do a little research, talk to some pilots, uh, talk to some people he works with, you know, little by little over a period of time. Or uh, conversely, uh, I think maybe he could have been a ramp agent or something like that. Someone who had experience inside airplanes, inside aircraft, a working knowledge of how they worked. Generally, people that work around airplanes or in the airline industry, even if they're not flying the planes or designing the planes at the ground level, uh, they're generally interested in aviation in some way. Um, And so I think the way that Dan Cooper figured these things out was probably through uh, a little bit of planning for sure. But I think he had that much planning done anyway. Um, I think he knew that the 727 uh, could be jumped from, you know, going into it, right? Because I think a lot of it was improvised. But I think that much he had figured out going in, obviously, right? That you can lower the stairs and jump out of this type of plane. So, and this is just one possible explanation uh, that he was a ramp agent or a mechanic for an airline. Airlines had their own mechanics back then. Many of them did. Um, he could have been affiliated in some way with the aviation industry. I think that's a safe bet. Um, as for the particles on his tie, uh, I think that might point to him working in an area like the tool and die shop. They used all kinds of different metals. Titanium was not quite as rare as, as I think as we've been led to believe. A lot of different industries used titanium. 
Um, and so he definitely, in my opinion, was a airline worker in some capacity or a Boeing employee. I lean toward Boeing employee because they had huge layoffs and it just makes sense logically that he worked for a company like that, that company in particular. It's in the Pacific Northwest. They laid off 3,000 people. Uh, there's all these different divisions and branches. There's dozens and dozens of places he could have worked. Um, so to just rule it out because, well, we looked at an engineer's tie and it doesn't look like his tie. So I guess he didn't work for Boeing. No, 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 no. It needs to be way more thoroughly investigated than that. So that's how I think he knew those things. He worked in around planes and did a little asking around. Do you think Cooper had military experience? Do you think that's where he learned to parachute? Um, it's possible. It's possible. Um, honestly, my kind of general composite, and this might you know, be uh, a little more useful if I just establish this now. <laughs> um, I think that Dan Cooper uh, was somebody that didn't have a lot of success in his life um, professionally, personally. Um, success, I don't measure success by monetary means. Uh, I'm not saying that he didn't have a lot of money but using, I, well, he didn't have a lot of money, but um, either way. So by whatever metric we use in society to deem whether or not somebody is successful, um, personally, privately, professionally, interpersonally, I don't think he had a lot of success in that, in those areas. Um, and so in terms of what he did for a living, um, I think that it was something involved in the aviation industry that didn't pay that well. What, what was this uh, root question again? Sorry about that. <laughs> like, Do you think getting... he had military experience, oh, especially right, right. parachuting? See, I can, I can birdwalk in this stuff and, and just end <laughs> up in la-la land, totally turned around. Um, That's okay. That's kind of the point of the show. <laughs> right. I think, yes. Uh, you know, yeah, I do think he probably had some military experience. Um, and that, right. And the point that I was going to make is I think it's very possible that Dan Cooper was a guy who was always outside the window his whole life, always looking in, you know, he saw people parachuting and he wanted to do it. Uh, he, you know, like as far as, um, you know, in the military, I don't believe he belonged to a Mac SOG unit or a special forces unit. Uh, I don't believe it. I haven't seen any evidence of it. Um, that works from the presumption that he survived. And there's no evidence of that, um, which is the million dollar question, right? But um, which I'm sure is going to be the last bit of the podcast, but not to spoil <laughs> anything, but you know, that works from the assumption. It gives him the benefit of the doubt at every turn, you know? And I think that that logic has gotten us nowhere. You know, instead of giving him the benefit of the doubt all the time, uh, I think it's time to kind of push back on some of these things and be like, well, maybe not. So to that end, uh, I do believe he was in the military, but I don't think that it was in a special forces unit or anything like that. He may have been a pararescue or a, uh, a paratrooper uh, at some point, possibly. Um, I would think that he probably was something like that, maybe. Um, which again has always been kind of an elite area of the military, but we don't know 
if he ever really jumped out in combat. There's a million little factors there. You know, it could be a million reasons why, um, you know, that profile of a guy who is never really the guy, uh, who's not this strapping, handsome, you know, heroic guy, um, you know, maybe he did, was in one of these units, but he never saw action or he got hurt and he wasn't able to continue on, you know, earlier in his life. And so, you know, parachuting was something he was always interested in. Um, but I don't think he had extensive parachuting experience. He may have, I think it's immaterial in a way, um, because a lot of these things, I mean, it, it is important, but um, whether or not he was in the military, eh, I'm not sure. Probably. And he probably jumped out of planes in the military, but special forces, I'm not sure. Cooper is described as, as carrying an attache case or, or a briefcase. And then there's also reports of him having some sort of mystery bag. It could be canvas. It could be paper. We have no idea what's in that bag. So I'm asking you to speculate. What do you think <laughs> in that bag, Jimmy? <laughs> I'm not going to. I can't. Oh, my goodness. These questions. I've just been waiting my whole life. I'm getting I'm bird walking. <laughs> uh, I talk about this stuff with whoever will listen in my circle all the time. But uh, and go back and forth on the Internet. But to keep it as succinct as possible, um, Prob- I, I don't think it's unreasonable to believe he had some kind of provisions in there as far as uh, for the cold. He did disappear to the bathroom for a little while. Um, he may have put something on, you know, uh, I think somebody earlier spotted some kind of funny undergarment that he may have been wearing. Um, and so in the bag, he may have had, uh, you know, he may have had some kind of clothing for the ground, you know, um, some kind of thing to change into when he landed so that way he wasn't the only guy jumping out of a freaking airplane in a jacket and you know in slacks you know he may have had a sweatshirt or a sweater or something like that in there um for warmth and of course this is complete speculation i have no idea but probably something for his jump i would think do you think he had a drop zone in mind oh yeah oh yeah yes i do I think he wanted to get out of that plane as soon as they got to altitude. I think he wanted to jump out of the plane <laughs> right as it got high enough to jump out safely, um, which would have put him somewhere in the Tacoma area, you know, in the Seattle Tacoma area. That's where he wanted to jump out of the plane. That's part of my theory on why I think he wanted the stairs down on takeoff, which he did. They went back and forth over it. Uh, and I think Cooper um, and this kind of goes along with my general uh, ideas of who he is as a person. I think he uh, acquiesced and was like, ah, whatever, um, because he was not afraid to improvise a little bit. Um, he had demonstrated that earlier, uh, that he didn't really care. You know, Mexico City, whatever. No, can't make it there. How about Phoenix? No. OK. How about San Francisco? No. How about, you know, Reno? Sure. Uh, you know, so that that improvisation, I think, comes in handy. But yeah, I think that he wanted to jump out as soon as they got to altitude. And that's why he wanted those stairs down. He knew he didn't know how to lower them. Uh, and so, you know, he wanted them down so we didn't have to fumble around in case it was difficult. And again, total speculation. But that's what I believe. So, yeah, I, I think he missed his his want the drop zone he wanted. And it goes again to the criminal psychology of criminals. And Dan Cooper was a criminal, 
even if he wasn't earlier in his life, I think he probably was, but n- maybe not a whole bunch of criminals. Well, the Dan Cooper we know certainly was a criminal. Right, right. Yes. And so criminals make mistakes. Uh, they don't think things through all the way a lot of the time. You know, you, I, I work in criminal arraignments. Um, I see this all the time. You know, when you ask them, you know, well, what are you going to do if you get caught? Get caught? They don't ever consider getting caught. A lot of them, they don't think about that. And so as far as, you know, Dan Cooper and his drop zone, uh, I think he just figured, well, I'll get the, you know, the stairs will be down uh, as soon as we take off and I'll jump out and I'll be in the, I think he probably lived in the Seattle Tacoma area. And so uh, he, you know, if he worked for Boeing or he worked for an airline um, and was a, or if he was a pilot, even uh, it makes sense that he would want to jump out near where he lives. Um and so I think his his drop zone was in that area. I think he did not want to jump out uh, as far south as he did. I think that's very interesting because he did ask to take off with the stairs down. And mm-hmm. even more interesting than that, the pilots refuse to do that because they believe it's unsafe. And Cooper tells them that it's possible but he's not going to argue with them. He'll just lower them in flight. And Mm -hmm. even with like the CIA Vietnam 727 planes that were used to drop gear and troops, I don't believe they ever took off with the stairs down. There's just no reason to do that. No, no, there's no record of them How did this guy know that the plane could take off with the stairs down? That thing, that's even more impressive to me than knowing the flight configuration for jumping out of that plane. Well, because nobody was doing that. (laughs) Right. Let me play devil's advocate here. All right. Um, Let's party. (laughs) What says, why would he need to know that? What, What would prevent them from taking off with the staircase down? It's scraping across the ground. Big deal. Plane's still going to get in the air. There's, there's two, there's two, I don't want to say schools of thought, two theories here, because there's a position where the stairs are locked down, mm. where taking off would potentially be impossible because it would do damage structurally to the aircraft. And then there are the stairs just falling down where they can be pushed back up against the hydraulics. Mm-hmm. And you can all pull up a video on YouTube, but forgive me, I can't remember the name, but there's a, a video of a 727 taking off where people are t- trying to run up the back stairs. Oh, interesting. And this is this has got to be like 10 years plus after the, the hijacking. Mm-hmm. And I just struggle to, to think who would know that that plane could take off with the stairs down. The pilots didn't even know if the plane could fly with the stairs down. But Cooper yeah. knew that it could take off with him down. Yeah, that's true. Um, I I would counter by saying a little bit, and I agree with you. Um, you know, that is one way of of, of looking at it. I kind of look at it like, you know, maybe he just assumed that it could, you know. And totally I think possible. Cooper was was definitely I like I said, I think he cared what people thought of him. I think he did not want to be gaffed. I don't think that he wanted to look like an idiot. Uh, I think he wanted to look intelligent. I think he wanted to look like he knew what he was doing. Um, He has a counter for everything. 
you know, like he, <laughs> he doesn't just say, oh, you know, you're right. Never. He always comes back with something. To me, that doesn't say he's a, he's a genius. That says that he's a smart ass and wants to act like he knows everything and is pushing back on every little thing like, uh, well, whatever, we can do it this way. Uh, <laughs> and that's, that is, and I'm, I don't really believe that, but that is a different way of looking at it. You know, it's like, well, who's to say? I mean, what if the pilot was like, uh, you know, or what if the pilot was like, okay, fine. Or, you know, what, what if something developed a little differently, you know, that might color our, our view of who he was and, and what choices he made, you know, it's a nothing comment to say, oh, we can, but we won't like, okay, what does that even mean? Prove that we, you know, you're not going to prove that we can, you just have said that, you know, but again, you can't really do that. Right. Cause that's almost the same thing as saying, well, may maybe the tie wasn't his, maybe the stewardesses were wrong. We have to assume that there was a reason he, you know, that he thought that you could. And so to your point, I don't know, you know, I don't know what person knows that uh, somebody that, you know, he may have been intelligent in aviation, you know, with airplanes, he may have been a big aviation nerd you know, and known, you know, without the lived experience that it was possible. Um, it's more likely that he, that something obviously led him to, to knowing that, of course. Um, but um, on its own, I don't know if it's enough to really come up with a composite profile of who this guy may have been. Um, I do think that he had a lot of experience in airplanes. He referred to the phone as the interphone. He referred to the stairs as the air stairs, uh, you know, when it came to deplane. Um, this is a guy, and Tina, this stuck out to her. You know, she was like, oh, you know, he, and this is important because, again, I think women are very keen on details like this um, because of their, you know, their mothering intuition, their perception of danger is, is different than men's. And I think that they're just, in general, hopefully, you know, I don't get any heat for this, but I think that they're just better at these kinds of things, you know? And so the fact that it stuck out to her is important because that means he was using it in casual conversation in a way that you and I wouldn't. Uh, and that was important. You know, that was a detail that she found pretty curious. So Who's the guy that knows this about the stairs? I'm not sure, but I do think it is highly, highly likely that Dan Cooper worked around airplanes, uh, which is probably why he hijacked one. Yeah, the the interphone comment, they were quick to point that out, that that was industry jargon. Right. And that's something that, you know, most people, even though it is industry jargon, uh, are not going to really know, you know, and that's something that only a meticulous person would say, I work, you know, in a field where there's all kinds of technical jargon as far as like different types of forms and different laws and different things. I never refer to stuff by its proper name, even if I know it, you know, so this is a guy who it was important to, to refer to these things as their proper name. And I think it does have something to do with the fact that he did not want to look like an idiot. He wanted them to think he knew exactly what he was doing. Uh, that, again, my opinion on that one. But All right, here's a super hot question for you. Do you think it's possible that Cooper never jumped from the airplane 
and then somehow in Reno, he casually escapes from the aircraft. Yeah, yeah. I think it's possible also that um, he jumped and then got abducted by aliens right away. I mean, no, that's ridiculous. And that's usually, you know, like people that are like natural, like skeptics, right? Like that. And I am a skeptic, but, you know, that's like your first it's like people have one of like three first opinions on D.B. Cooper. It was Richard McCoy. It was that he never <laughs> got off the plane. Uh, or it was that, you know, what does it matter? He died anyway or something like that, you know. And so <laughs> if you take away that one, it's only it was McCoy or he stayed on the plane. Uh, but those seem to be the prevailing ones that have endured, you know. Um, no, they, they had the whole airport surrounded. They had every FBI agent and local provincial cop in the whole freaking area. They searched the plane with dogs. They searched the plane with dogs. Uh, They had the whole perimeter of the airport surrounded. You know, (laughs) no, he wasn't on the plane. He took off. All right. How about this? I've got two theories for you. Mm -hmm. They're all along the same vein. One is that Cooper never existed and the flight crew cooked it up. <laughs> right, right. The other is that Cooper was in on it with the flight crew. So Cooper exists yeah. and he does jump out of the plane, but he's totally in on it with the flight crew. What do you think of those two theories? Wh- which was the first theory that he Cooper exist? never existed and the flight crew made him up. Um, it's hard to even know what to respond to that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, I don't know. Yeah. You know, what if, wouldn't it be easier just to hijack the plane yourself? Why, you know, <laughs> I, or, you know, why, what, what is the, the motivator, the money, where are you going to land the plane? You know, as soon as you land the plane, if there's no person there, you know, but not only that, so people can't keep good secrets like that. First of all, second of all, when has that ever happened before? Third of all, uh, there was people that saw him in the airplane and at the airport. So now so now it's a conspiracy with everybody aboard the aircraft, uh, you know, the ticketing agent, the pilots, the stewardesses. You know, give me a break. Like, ah, just, this stuff drives me nuts. Those seem to be the theories that people come to when they hear the story. <laughs> and it's like, oh, I know. He never existed. The flight crew made it up. Or I know he never jumped and then casually walked off the plane in Reno. Oh, and I can. Yeah. And I could freak out on this a lot harder. And I and I do like (laughs) a lot of the times in my head when I'm responding to because I don't really respond to those. But um, yeah, I mean, it's like almost a perfect troll for like the db cooper people because like if i was a troll that's what i would say right i would be like oh, this is gonna drive them nuts uh and so you know to me uh i mean it's just ridiculous you know and, and a spade is usually a spade you know things are usually not too far from what they really are now there are instances of course many where things are totally not as they seem but that's more rare than things being largely the way that they are. You know, what, there's no motivation to do that from the pilots and the stewardesses. They think they're going to get away with that. So they're all criminally, you know, insane. Is You know, what's more likely that this, these, you know, even if it was just the pilots and the stewardesses. Oh, so these seven people are uh, all, you know, hijackers psychologically. 
seven people with great jobs they loved and continued doing. And exactly. I mean, it's just so absurd that there's just not, I mean, how many different ways can we shut the stupid theory down? You know, it's <laughs> millions. It's just like, it melts my brain. I only ask those questions because I, the more people that can just totally poo poo that point, the better, because I absolutely hate getting those. Oh, I would yeah. rather answer a hundred McCoy was Cooper emails <laughs> than Cooper never existed emails. Yeah. It just drives me crazy. Oh, it drives me crazy too. The McCoy ones drive me nuts too, because I think that it's one person with a bunch of different accounts or a couple people with a bunch of different accounts. Um, and, you know, the McCoy stuff really drives me nuts because, and the Rackstraw stuff, those two in particular, um, you know, Kenny Christensen theory. Um, I like the gentleman who wrote that book. You know, I know he's a, he's a polarizing figure and he's an unpopular guy in the DB Cooper world, but even though I don't agree with him on much, I don't think he's a bad guy. Uh, you know, the same cannot necessarily be said for some people that push other suspects. Um, for the Richard McCoy thing, that stuff drives me berserk. Like those other questions drive you mad. That one drives me crazy. And the Rackstraw one. But not many people believe it's Rackstraw, you know. Um, only really one guy that I can think of. <laughs> when, when the 2016 History Channel documentary came out, I had emailed Robert Blevins and Bruce Smith a couple of times, and that was like the extent of my involvement in D.B. Cooper. And that Rackstraw doc uh, came out in, in 2016, and I emailed both of them, and I was like, "What? what's your thoughts on this? Yeah. <laughs> and then both of them were just like, I, can't, I was shocked that it was Rackstraw. I can't believe they retreaded this ground. Oh, like for the... Uh... For the one that just came out, the Netflix one? No, in, in 2016, it was uh, D.B. Cooper case closed question mark. W wasn't that the first one that did the Rackstraw stuff or no? That, that was the first one. So interestingly, the two Rackstraw ones both oh. essentially end with it's not Rackstraw, which, yeah, I you mean, know, part of me feels bad for Colbert about that. But, you know, I, I don't. And, you know, and I don't, again, I don't want to disparage anybody um, unless I feel like they are a little bit malignant or malicious in the way that they present information. And, you know, I'm not going to draw any specifics or anything, but sometimes I get the impression that, uh, you know, some of the information may not be correct and that might not be an accident, you know, uh, just from that general suspect uh i'm not gonna make say any specifics but there is one point in the documentary where somebody that is a big fan of robert rackstraw says that and the stewardesses specifically said he was wearing a disguise i don't remember who it is but uh that is a blatant falsehood they specifically said he was not wearing a disguise but it's the things like that and I, that is deliberate i feel like it's deliberate anyway um, so that kind of stuff, like really, really, for some reason, burns my saddle, I swear, because that's, I feel like a manipulation of the facts. You know, if you have a suspect and it makes you feel so strongly that you don't care what you have to do, you just need to make people believe it. Like, uh, I don't understand the logic. I don't understand it. 
Well, really I don't think to... that's limited to Rackstraw and McCoy. I think a lot of, right. this isn't my term, but it's been used on the show, so I'll use it. Suspect peddlers <laughs> yeah, 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 will that. tend to emphasize things in the case that agree with their suspect and intentionally avoid of things course. that disagree with their suspect. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's it's a huckster move, you know, it's. Do you really want to solve this or do you want to get the credit for solving it? Right. Like if that's what it's about. Uh, and it that's is, a very interesting distinction. Right. And it and it is about getting the credit for it for a lot of people. Um, you know, myself, like I have a little bit of that, too, of course, but I'm not willing to let, um, you know, some pursuit of glory interfere with what I know to be true. You know, and when I have somebody that I, you know, and I don't have a lot of suspects, um, I have researched in various areas looking for uh, suspects and have developed, a, you know, a few people where I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Uh, as soon as, the, you know, I really scrutinize the suspect. I don't look away from the stuff that says like, oh, well, that's clearly not him. I, I, I lean into that stuff because that's what you do as a researcher. You are the biggest critic of your information. You know, regardless of whether or not you want to be persuasive, let the facts persuade people, because if they don't stand on their own, uh, then it's not genuine. And what kind of credit is that anyway? You know why? <laughs> like if you know deep down, but maybe they don't, you know, I think some of them do. But, you know, if you know deep down that you arrived at this conclusion based on spurious information or things that you know are untrue. What glory is there in in that? You know, I don't know. Well, it's it's interesting. You know, people have put so much work into this and and believe it's one way. And I I feel like sometimes the amount of work they've put in, they can't say, "Oh my gosh, I was wrong." That's unfortunate. Yeah, that I agree point. with you, one hundred percent. Myself, I don't want to be standing up and saying something. When other people are like, dude, that's wrong. I would just rather be like, oh, you guys are right. I, I made a mistake <laughs> right. there. Right. I was wrong. Of course. Um, let's move forward. Yeah. But I, I think if I had tied myself to, you know, to Billy Bob Johnson, he's my suspect. He, mm -hmm. It's 100% him. I've spent 10 years working on this guy to, after the 10 years, have a document come out where it's like, dang, it's not Billy Bob. I, I'm just, I like to think that I could say, Hey guys, I was wrong about this, <laughs> but, but I don't know. Cause I, I haven't done that. Yeah. So I do feel for, for some of the people that have been longtime proponents of suspects that most would agree. Oh, it's definitely not this guy, but they're still out there, you know, holding up the torch for him. 100%. Yeah. And I haven't been in that position either. I will say, I, I think it takes a lot of deliberate looking away from any of the major suspects that have been discussed um, in the beginning, you know? And so as a human being, I think I empathize with whatever personality, you know, that leads people to not be able to look at things objectively as far as, and I'm not perfect either, obviously, like I don't look at things objectively all the time, with db cooper stuff i try to to the best of my ability but 
and it doesn't even really need to be said that <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm very far from it. But with this stuff where, you know, it's like, okay, in the first five minutes, it's not him, you know, read the description of the guy. Does that fit your suspect? No, then it's not him. Move on. But so I do think there's some deliberate and, you know, within reason, it, we don't really know what he looked like. We have a facsimile, but we, you know, we don't really know what he looked like. So I, I'm willing to go a margin of error a little bit and be open-minded. But, you know, if he's a half a foot shorter or, you know, completely bald or he has blue eyes and pale skin, it's not him. You know, it's not him. So you have to look away at certain key points. Um, and so to that part, I empathize with the personality that it takes or sympathize rather uh, with that type of individual that can't, for whatever reason, look away when they know that this is not how it is because they all have those moments where they're like, Oh man, it's not him. But they, I would argue, choose to ignore that and move on and keep harping on it. And so to me, that's unfortunate and, I'm glad that I don't have that, but I see how somebody could, and and it it's unfortunate. Well, you don't have that yet. You could be locked into a suspect <laughs> right. tomorrow. I'll be talking to you when you're 41, and well, you'll be right. denying I, facts. <laughs> right. I have that in other areas of my life, many other areas of my life. You know, I have a lot of blind spots, but with DB Cooper, I'm able to keep it pretty objective. I feel, um, and you know, what's really objective anyway, is a, a total objectivity ever possible? No, probably not. And so I think I'm being objective, but, you know, I think I'm being more objective than a lot of people that are peddling suspects. Do you think the flight path is accurate? You know, the flight path is one of those things where, man, you know, probably, maybe not. Um, I kind of tend to believe that it might not be 100%, you know, down to the last pin uh, accurate. Um, and you mentioned his name. And so, you know, I don't, and I'm, I'm not saying anything bad about him. I actually quite like Mr. Blevins. I think he's a nice guy. Um, and he gave me a little schooling on the flight path somewhat recently. And he, he believes that there is enough evidence to say, yes, it is 100% accurate. I don't think so. Not 100%. And the reason I don't think so is because where you find money is where the, that money got there after it left the plane, you know, using powers of deduction, what makes the most sense? You know, the only thing that we don't really know 100% because we don't have that information is where the plane precisely was. Uh, Radicek was flying. He was hand flying. Uh, he was. He called. He himself called his flight path a zigzag. You know, the only thing it takes for that money to get there, and the money is hard evidence. Where that money is, Cooper was at least in that area, the Washougal River. I don't believe in the Washougal washdown theory. Um, and I don't think that the money got there from another tributary of the Columbia River, not the Lewis River, um, not the Washougal River. So you have hard evidence on the ground. And that means something. You know, what does it mean exactly? Well, you know, I don't think it means, in a, and I'm not going to birdwalk into this, but I, for me, 
I don't believe for a second that it was left behind deliberately. No way. I don't believe it. Um, so for me, that means that the plane was obviously somewhere over that area. In that general area, he could have drifted to that area. Um, maybe, uh, you know, he, maybe he j jumped and <laughs> landed in the river. And over time, his body moved to the closer to the Tina bar. And we can get into that. But either way, I don't think it's 100% accurate. I don't have the information. And I don't believe anybody does. Not the information that we need to know if it was 100% accurate. And we can go even further on this. Like, well, how accurate was the radar? Because according to Mr. Blevins, the plane, the closest it got to Tina Bar was six miles, um, I believe. Six miles. You know, that's pretty freaking close when we're talking, you know, flying over, uh, considering the fact that Cooper had a parachute that he couldn't steer. Suddenly, you know, I think it becomes a little more plausible that, you know, maybe, you know, Radicek zigged a little further than he thought, a little further than the flight information shows. You know, it doesn't it wouldn't have to take very much. Um, but before I thought that, you know, no way. I thought it was just off by a little bit. And he obviously landed somewhere near Tina Bar. They found money there and that money was tied to his body. So logic for me says he was in that area and so he's only you know he is so far when he's in that area he is really far from where the fbi was looking where the original drop zone was it has to be off you know and of course i can't say that 100 because i don't have the empirical information it would need to be tested um and i think you could find out by studying that money you could come up with a bunch of different scenarios, but the money, in my opinion, is is the key to the whole thing. Uh, the money that we do have, you know, the six thousand or the fifty eight hundred dollars, fifty eight hundred and twenty dollars. I think, um, you know, as much of that as could be collected, as much of that that is in private hands. I think you could find out all kinds of information based on that money, and they have but there's a lot more that could be found. So the roundabout way of saying, I don't think that the flight path is 100% correct. So this leads into two of my other questions at the same time. So I assume you don't believe the FBI's drop zone is correct. And then you also believe that the money arrived on Tina Bar via a Western flight path. Uh, yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, again, I am not a scientist. Um, I am. I don't have a qualification so far as, you know, well, I have done the math and I have looked at it. I haven't. I can't say that. Um, this is all speculation, although I'll, I kind of argue that it's not 100% speculation. And, and the reason is, is because we have physical evidence. And where that physical evidence is found is critical to positioning that plane. Um, it's not really a miss, like there's not much mystery in it. If you allow uh, as your main variable, the money, you know, what does the money tell us? Uh, where would the plane have to be? And I'm not saying this is the conclusion to the research, but figuring out where the plane, because this is, this is not, you know, proper science. You don't have your conclusion and then try to prove it. Right. But you may not need to do that because you have physical evidence. You have the empirical data. The data is the money. And so you find exactly where the plane would have to be. 
and then compare that to the original flight path. And if it's ridiculously off, then, well, the original flight path might be correct. So then you move on to the next scenario, you know, and people have done this ad nauseum. I appreciate that. I understand. But, um, you know, uh, I think the money got there by natural means. I do. And I don't think it, it traveled a great distance either. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> well, I just, you know, and of course I'm flexible on these things. You know, these are, these are my opinions. Um, I'm not married to any of these. Uh, if somebody showed me some evidence of a really good suspect um, and, uh, and he, I looked at the picture and I looked at the sketch and, it, you know, and he fits, checks all the boxes, like, and actually checks some, not just like sort of in the ballpark, check some, <laughs> um, <laughs> then yeah, I could be like, well, you know, he must've lost some of it then maybe he put some in the briefcase and lost that and that washed down, you know, there's any number of different theories, but, um, as it is now, um, yeah, no, I think that money was on the bottom of the Columbia river and whatever that means for Dan Cooper, <laughs> you know, you can decide, but for me, that's the only thing that makes logical sense. Um, and I understand the information about the diatomes. I get it. There was no seasonal diatomes from when he jumped, but there's a huge caveat with this. The money was protected free when it hit the water. Tina Mucklow, you know, saw it. She said it was wrapped in nylon parachute. It's unclear whether that was also with the bank bag, whether he took the money out of the bank bag, put it in the nylon parachute, then bundled it all up with the, you know, 50 plus feet of shroud line from one of the parachutes he didn't use. Uh, but I think it's, you know, again, it's kind of a leap of, you know, guesswork here. I think it's safe to assume that that money was in the soft cotton canvas bank bag. He wrapped that in a nylon parachute. Uh, you know, a certain length of nylon parachute, then wrapped that, bound that all up in cord, uh, and then attached that to his waist with a tether. Um, so it is yet to be investigated or, or, or tested scientifically what the impact um, that protecting the money when it enters the waterway, what effect on the bills does providing a buffer do. So if the money enters the water and it's protected by all those different layers, so now you have a canvas bank bag, you have 20 pounds of money. So the money in the middle of the stack, how are the diatomes going to get to that money in the wintertime? So maybe, you know, the bills that were found were from the near the center of the stack, the $6,000. So for me, um, I think that, you know, my theory, and I'm working on trying to test it, is um, that the fact that sand, you know, and, and Tom Kay talks about this in his analysis, that sand acts as, a, as an insulator. Diatomes struggle to get through the sand and attach to the money. Okay, so how about a cotton bank bag, a nylon parachute? 50 feet of shroud line and a bunch of mud on the bottom of the Columbia river. Are there diatomes at the bottom of the river? I don't know. I don't know a whole lot about diatomes. So, you know, also rubber bands are intact. The bottom of the Columbia river, if that bundle is covered in silt and mud and soot, it's a naturally, that environment has 
a lot less oxygen. Things are going to deteriorate more slowly. Um, so now you have this big bundle, 20 pounds of money insulated by D.B. Cooper. And then he enters the water. Whatever happens to him, it subterfuge doesn't matter. So I don't know what happened to him, but you know, for the sake of argument here, he comes separated from the money somehow, or somehow the money ends up at the bottom of the river. Um, what happens to the money? You know, and I think that that is a big question because I don't think that the money, you know, it's the water and the, the elements are going to act completely differently on naked bundles of $20 bills floating around in the river. This wasn't that scenario. They were protected. They were insulated. Um, that bundle weighed 20 pounds. It would have sank to the bottom of the river quickly. <laughs> and when it got there, it would have been covered up by mud. At least that's my idea on it. Everything else gets covered up by mud on the bottom of the Columbia River. So after a while, that whole bundle is covered in mud. The money is completely insulated. It's cold. There's not as much oxygen down there. And I, I would like to see what effect that has on the rubber bands and the money itself. Based on what you've said, I'm guessing you don't believe Cooper survived the jump. Well, I don't know. You know, ultimately, at the end of the day, I, I really don't know. Sometimes I think he did. Sometimes I think he didn't. I think in any case, the money was at the bottom of the Columbia River. That's my theory in that area. To me, it's the only thing that makes a ton of sense. Cooper, um, you know, I don't know. I don't think so. You know, real, realistically, I don't I don't think that he did survive. He may have. I, I That's because you have a red Martin Andrade's book. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, here's the thing survivability of the jump, right? I, I'm not arguing that it was stormy, that it was torrential downpour. It doesn't need to be those things. It doesn't have to be for him not to survive. There's so much we don't know that we can't make a real convincing argument that he did survive. We don't know how much jump training he had, A. And I realized that, oh, wait, there was hijackers who didn't have much and they survived. Okay, how many of them jumped out? at night over the Pacific Northwest, you know, <laughs> dressed as, as we presume he was dressed. We don't know anything about Cooper. So we don't know anything about his capabilities, really. Um, the only thing that has to happen <laughs> for Cooper to not survive is he pulls a couple seconds too late, you know? So he, he pulls a couple seconds too late. He doesn't survive, period, you know? And so while the jump may have been survivable, and it may have been very survivable. We don't know because we don't know what he was capable of. Um, and for me, there's too many variables to really say like one way or another. I think based on the mistakes he made on the plane, of which are, there are ample mistakes, uh, again, letting the passengers go before the parachutes are aboard and many other mistakes, no disguise. He took the sunglasses off, you know, uh, <laughs> I've been talking a lot, so I, I don't, you know, those are just a couple examples, but he was capable of making mistakes. And I think that's kind of something that doesn't enter into the narrative a lot. So a guy who's already capable of making mistakes, he's already done this crazy thing. All it takes for him is to make one more little mistake in his history. So for me, I think that that's pretty reasonable, but it also doesn't diminish the mystery for me personally, if he doesn't survive. 
it's still we still don't know who he was and that's a big that's the most attractive part of the mystery for me well said all right now i'm gonna ask you again you have to push all your chips in he survived or he didn't survive the jump this one's easier for me no i don't think that he did Ooh, very interesting <laughs> i know that's a frustrating uh it's, it's uh, not frustrating i actually kind of like it, it and it, it also puts you in the minority amongst my guests <laughs> right right yeah you know i understand how and i've listened to a lot of the guests and i've listened to a lot of people over the years and read the books and things and i believe that he survived too i really did and i thought you know when i was younger First coming into the case, Dwayne Weber was the suspect of the day. This was around 2001, 2002. Um, and that's who I believe did it because that, that was the information that was available. You know, that's who was on TV. Uh, Joe Weber was on King Five or Cairo or, and it was an affiliate network out of Florida where she was living at the time. Uh, and so, you know, Joe Weber was convincing, you know, like she wrapped it up nicely, confessed on his deathbed and all these things. And Dwayne Weber, I hate to say it, you know, because I know a lot of people don't like what Joe Weber had to say and all this stuff. I like Joe Weber. Um, I didn't know her personally, but I think she meant well. She was just not in her right mind toward the end, especially. But either way, Dwayne Weber's a dead ringer for the physical description, a dead ringer. Like he looks exactly like the guy they're describing six feet tall, dark, mid forties, early fifties, uh, swarthy complexion, wavy, dark Brown or black hair, Brown eyes, uh, protruding lower lip. He even has that feature. Um, but you know, at the end of the day, I, I don't really think it is him. Uh, in any case, um, yeah, no, I, I don't think that he survived. Of course, I could believe that he did, but as it is now, um, no, I'm kind of, unfortunately, you know, I just, to me, it's a kind of a tragedy in a way. Um, I don't think that it needed, like the hijacking and all of these things. It is cool and it is mysterious, but um, there is, you know, something <laughs> kind of tragic about it. Um, and I just don't believe that he did live. And the reason is, is because the money and it washed up on the bank of the Columbia River, um, you know, whether it was planted there. Why? Why on earth would he plant it there? What does that location have to do with anything? <laughs> you know, like, why would he plant it somewhere near where they thought he landed? He wouldn't have even known to think of that location. You know, it doesn't make any sense to me because you know, like, oh, I'm going to hide it here at Tina Bar. Why? You know, why would you do that? Like, no one, Tina Bar hadn't even ever been discussed. The FBI never even looked there. Um, so it's a peculiar place to leave a clue when it's never been discussed. Um, nobody even knew about that location. So, again, you know, that's just a, an odd thing. But um, I think where you find money, uh that's a if they never found anything no money at all then yeah maybe you know maybe he lived but the fact that they found it next to the columbia river oh it's crushing i just don't you know it just can only mean a couple things do you think the changing sketches did damage to the case oh totally um yeah well I mean, damage to the case, I don't know, but I, I think it wasted a lot of the FBI's time. 
um, because they don't look anything alike, right? <laughs> you have, I mean, you have a lot of sketches. You have the first one that he looks pretty young. He also looks, you know, decidedly more Latin. And that's, they never even widely circulated that one. You know, it's the sunglasses one and he has the wavy hair swept back. I mean, that guy looks like he's in his mid twenties. Um, yeah, he does. Big square they, jaw. Yeah, square jaw, right. It's And I think they used Robert Gregory's description a lot more for that one. Um, and he was the gentleman that said, well, he, he appeared to be, uh, you know, he had high cheekbones. He appeared to have Mexican-American ancestry or Native American ancestry. Um, same guy that said he had marceled hair in a russet colored jacket. Yeah, brown and russet colored jacket. Right. And it's kind of weird. You know, I don't know if I believe that necessarily. However, his physical description of how he looked, his skin color, his hair color, those things were correct. Uh, and he wasn't seated that far away. And apparently he got enough looks at him to, to put together a pretty good idea of what he looked like. Um, but uh, the money thing is a big, you know, finding it next to the river is a, is a, is a big tell. Do you think the FBI and or CIA knows exactly who D.B. Cooper is and they're intentionally covering it up? No, no, I don't. Why not? (laughs) What would the motivation be? They have had people on the inside of the FBI and the CIA that have been guilty of more serious crimes than D.B. Cooper was guilty of. Uh, and they outed them publicly and it made them look bad. And I don't have, you know, specific instances in this case, um, but right. no, no need. It's, is that's right. Right. I just, you know, no, no, that would mean Larry Carr uh, is lying first of all. And I don't know if there's more of a boy scout out there. I don't believe the man is capable of a lie of that magnitude. Uh, of course I don't know him, but you know, just from the impression I get, I think he, he's saying everything he knows. Um, I definitely think he wanted to solve it. I do too. Yeah. And I don't think the FBI is, is in every instance or in many instances, a malignant negative, you know, entity out there operating, um, in, in secrecy. Uh, I mean, in many ways, yes, uh, for their protection and things. And I'm not a big um, you know, and this isn't in any way uh, an insight into my beliefs politically or anything. I just don't think that um, that makes any sense. You know, what, D.B. Cooper is such a drop in a bucket for the FBI. You know, it, to us, it's a big deal. To them, it's Tuesday night. Well said. Jimmy, how did D.B. Cooper get to the airport? Oh, boy. I don't even know if I could speculate too much, but uh, I think D.B. Cooper is a local to the Pacific Northwest. I don't believe that he traveled a great distance. Uh, It doesn't make any sense to me that he did. Are you, you know, and it goes to the Canadian thing. Why would you hijack a plane in America uh, when (laughs) we have the most rigid, uh, you know, in a prosecutorial sense, the most rigid, you know, court system in the Western world? you know, if he's this criminal mastermind, well, he, he fumbled that one. He should have hijacked a plane to Canada because he would have done like three years or five years. That's kind of unimportant in a way to me. Uh, I just think that he lived in, in the area and was local either to Seattle, Tacoma, which is kind of what I believe, because I believe that he was somehow involved in the airline industry. 
Um, and he probably, you know, maybe hopped on a bus, took a train. I'm not sure, but um, he definitely didn't fly. I don't think. Um, yeah, I don't think that he did. I think he was from here. Why the name Dan Cooper? Oh, it's tough. I go back and forth on that one. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I guess it informs um, a little bit. You know, I want it to be the comic book character. I do, but I don't, you know, he could have got it from that. He could have. And that that might mean any number of things. You know, people are going to use a pseudonym like that, like James Bond or something, um, because the character has appeal to them. It's either what they aspire to be in some way, what their fantasy is in some way, or something that they relate to. So if he did choose it because of the comic book character, um, you know, that was someone that he either aspired to be like somebody that he, you know, identified with in some way, obviously, or he might have had a little bit of a sense of humor, you know, maybe he thought that was ironic in that he identified with the heroic and daredevil nature of that character but he was doing something inherently cowardly and dastardly so there was some irony there but also that he felt that he was justified you know uh, which i do believe I, I believe he was completely entitled and felt he was justified uh, as most criminals eh, do but uh yeah i don't know it could be a coincidence but I really don't think so, to be honest. Um, I lean more toward it, that it was a deliberate uh, choice. That's one hell of a coincidence. It is one hell of a coincidence. I I, I hope it's the comic book. <laughs> I'm pretty sure, like, you know, gun to my head, I would say, yeah. I mean, that is, a, first of all, it's kind of on brand, you know, uh, as far as just kind of his general disposition in a lot of ways. You know, he was described, even though I don't think that there's a ton of evidence that he was just the, the person that, you know, people think that he was, he wasn't always calm. He did freak out at multiple parts, but he was also pretty chill a lot of the time too. Uh, you know, Robert Gregory and, and a couple other people, they described him as just kind of looking uninterested, that he just looked kind of sleepy and like, you know, that he had no worry at all, that he was just you know, okay, you know, at, at many points until his demands were not being met, then he kind of freaked out a little bit. And he was pretty nervous and jittery a lot, especially toward the end of the hijacking. But uh, I think it kind of vibes with him, you know, to pick something like that. And it's kind of romantic in a way. Um, you know, this was going to be this guy's last hurrah, you know, in a way, uh, there was no guarantee that he was going to live. Um, not at all. You know, maybe he felt like he was, but somewhere in there, he had to wonder if something went wrong, uh, if he would live. Um, so he was willing to take a huge gamble with his life and the lives of others because he felt compelled and entitled to, you know, to a monetary thing. And so in that way, uh, coupled with the uninterested kind of like, you know, just Mr. Cool kind of persona he was giving off. I think that they're tied together. I think he wanted people to see him like Dan Cooper, the, the dashing hero. Why are there so many suspects in this case? 
Oh, uh, just because I think, you know, TV Cooper is cool to people. And, you know, <laughs> I think, honestly, I think most of the suspects think that he didn't make it. So they don't think that, you know, the people that have claimed to have been him, I don't think they're worried about the real guy ever surfacing. And so, you know, I, I think that they don't worry about that. You know, I think they're like, well, I'm just, I am Dan Cooper. Cause they're not worried about it ever coming to light that they, you know, that they're not. So, you know, that's part of it. But of course the bigger part is, is that, you know, for whatever reason, and there's many that we covered, uh, he's an attractive uh, figure in our, you know, in our collective cultural zeitgeist. And so that makes him appealing in so many different ways. The whole Robin Hood thing, even though he wasn't a Robin Hood, he did try to give some money to the stewardesses. But again, I think that's because he cared about how they saw him and he wanted to impress them with his knowledge and how in control he was and, and how giving he was, even though, of course, he's threatened to kill them the whole time. So there's this juxtaposition in character. Um, but also, uh, I think people only ever really possess like a baseline comprehension of what he really did. And so, you know, when they accuse somebody of it, they're almost like accusing somebody of being like a harm, you know, like a bank robber that didn't hurt anybody. Um, but, you know, really, as you peel back the layers, um, these people, Tina Mucklow and, and Florence Schaffner in particular, uh, carried years of emotional uh, pain from the event. Years. I don't think they're either over it yet in a lot of ways. Um, so he did do harm. But, you know, in the collective conscience of, of the United States, I think he's attractive because people think he didn't hurt anybody. And so if they accuse somebody of a crime like that, you know, it might not be that big of a deal because he's cool and he's dashing and he's kind of this Robin Hood figure and he's an outlaw too, of course. But um, so that and just the, you know, the manifestation of who he is in our cultural zeitgeist, um, I think is why. We touched on confessions a little bit, but did you listen to the episode I did with Larry Carr? I did, I think. Yes, I did. One of the things I found most shocking about what he said to me was that while he was working that case for the FBI, two different people walked into an FBI office to confess. And, you know, in my opinion, there's a big difference between confessing to being D.B. Cooper to your family or at the bar with your buddies um, and then taking it a step farther and going into an FBI office yeah. to confess to a crime. And that just it yeah. takes it to such another level. For sure. No, it, it does. What do you think compelled those people, if you could speculate on that, to, well, yeah. to want to prove their confession somehow? <laughs> right. Um Please allow me. Uh, <laughs> I will definitely <laughs> indulge the question. Uh, um, or anyway, yeah, it's an interesting point, right? Is there's this kind of dichotomy between like accusing someone of being Dan Cooper, confessing to being him, and then walking in and confessing like that, right? Because if you confess to a loved one, you know, that's not the same, right? It doesn't carry the inherent legal <laughs> ramifications that are immediately going to follow. 
uh, I would just chalk it up to there being a lot of people on the street and in the world that are, that are unwell, you know, and <laughs> I see it every day. You know, I hate to be one of those people that's, oh, I've seen it a million times, but uh, you see it a lot. And, you know, drive through Portland now, you know, there's a lot of people that are not doing very well. And so I think it has something to do with that. All right. I got three questions for you here that are along the same line. So I'll just ask them all at once and you can uh, expound on that. Why is this case unsolved? Will it ever be solved? And what will it take to solve this case? Oh, those are, yeah, that's, uh, those are good questions, you know? Um, and those are like the, you know, the big million dollar, each one is like the million dollar question. Um, it's unsolved personally. And I was trying to, to summarize my thoughts on this um, in anticipation, you know? Uh, um, I think, you know, and this is kind of, you know, a version of, of why it's unsolved, I guess, is the, the, the most succinct way of putting it. Um, I think that rather than uh, Cooper being the reason that it's unsolved, um, of course, Co- Dan Cooper did a lot of things that night that led to the, the various things, right? Like he was the active agent in the, in the whole event. So to say he had nothing to do with why it's unsolved is inaccurate, but I, it's my contention that it has less to do with Dan Cooper as a criminal and more to do with this set of circumstances that lined up almost perfectly. And some of those are things that he did deliberately. We have to assume that he chose that day for a deliberate reason, whether it was because he wasn't working. I think personally, Dan Cooper was probably out of work anyway. Um, So he may have known that it would actually be a heavy travel time. So he thought he could blend in uh, more readily. But in any case, um, the fact that it was Thanksgiving the day before, that's part of it. Uh, The fact that the crew was compliant and did everything he asked them to do. Um, the fact that we don't really know where he jumped out, of course, is critical. Um, again, he didn't know where he jumped out. There's no way he could have known. Not precisely. Cloud cover was at 5,000 feet uh, in some areas. Um, while it was drizzling rain, it, that was on the ground. Um, you know, up where they were at in the plane, he couldn't have seen the ground. He may have seen like the lights of Portland somehow uh, and jumped. I think that's reasonable. Um, maybe the lights of the Lake Merwin Dam. I doubt it. Um, in any case, the fact that even he didn't, I don't think, know where he jumped out. So now you have um, the police the day before Thanksgiving. It's nighttime. He jumps out in a very rural area. He probably lands in the water. Um, And if you believe that he died, which I do, uh, now you have a body in the water 25 miles or 20 miles from where the FBI is even looking. Tina Bar is a remote location. There's no residential housing out there. Not really. Some, but not much. Um, It's remote. There wasn't much foot traffic there, even in 1970, even in 1971, 
there there was people that went fishing but again this is thanksgiving it's cold it was cold in that area there wasn't a lot of people out there that winter not people that are going to be able to spot a body necessarily um so if he you know if he does land in the water which is my theory and he dies he's going to float for a while it's, he's he's buoyant but it's a huge river um and the fact that he didn't get found or spotted, that's not hard to believe. Um, not at all. People drown all the time and, they, and we, you know, people see them drown and they never find their body. Uh, so that is not that mysterious to me. You know, again, circumstances, nobody got a picture of him. I think he was a lonely guy. Uh, so nobody reported him missing, which is not unreasonable. There's been a lot of people over the years who went missing that were not reported missing. And, and in the early 70s, men often did not get reported missing. Right. And so I also think that if he, I think he probably had a family, um, but I do believe that he was estranged from them. Um, and so that lined up perfectly, right? That's a circumstance that aligned um, the fact that the crew was compliant and didn't tackle him or, you know, <laughs> or the FBI didn't shoot off the plane. You know, again, he did draw the shades and stuff, but the FBI was kind of reckless in those days. Um, so that lined up perfectly. Um, the fact that he got to sit in the back of the plane, that kind of lined up perfectly. So you have, because uh, he got on the plane second to last, somebody could have already been sitting there. Then what? What is he going to tap him on the shoulder and be like, eh, move? Like, okay, that's another interaction that could lead to a conflict. And he did not want that. So, you know, just kind of by chance, uh, by dumb luck, he got the back of the plane. Um, of course, people are going to fill up, you know, presumably uh, from the front back on an airplane in those days, you know, in the front of the plane is first class and things. But there was no guarantee. They let people sit wherever they want, I believe, on that particular flight. Um, so. Why is it unsolved? Because I think the circumstances uh, lined up perfectly and these things do happen. And it's one of those anomalies. Um, I think it can be solved. Um, and I think it probably will be eventually. But what will it take to solve this case? Well, for me, uh, and this is just me personally, I think everybody has a different uh, line on where they are with this. Uh, it wouldn't take as much um, as, you know, one might think by listening to me on this stuff. Um, because, you know, I think a lot of it just cannot be known. But for, you know, legal, <laughs> legally, how could it be proved? Um, you know, through DNA and things like that, of course. And that's the only way it gets definitively closed. But reasonably solved, uh, a suspect that that checks all the boxes. And again, like the actual boxes, um, which, you know, I guess is debatable. Uh, but, um, somebody that, that looks like the sketch reasonably more fits the physical description, um, and checks my, you know, like my boxes, but legally, I think, I don't know 100% if there's, I don't think anybody does that, the cigarette butts and the um, cigarette butts. And what is the other thing that they botched? Oh, the hair. Uh, you know, the jury's kind of out on that. Different people have different, say different things, you know, 100%, those things are gone. Uh, 
But until I see, a, a, you know, a destroyed evidence receipt, a hand receipt from the FBI that says, yes, uh, this was a lot, you know, whatever alphanumeric code they have. And it's one, <laughs> one hair on a glass slide. Then, then I'll believe that that evidence is destroyed 100%. But I do think that there is a possibility that that evidence could be retrieved someday. Or uh, that as DNA technology continues to improve even more, who's to say where we'll be in 50 years? Uh, they will find DNA on that tie eventually. That's, that is you know, reasonably DNA that is degraded to the point that it's from that time period. And there's not going to be, you know, I don't know if they passed it around to a hundred different people, but uh, someday I think DNA technology will be accessible enough and good enough, and it'll be reasonable enough uh, affordability wise to, to test, uh, you know, to test any DNA sample that's on the tie. And I think it could be solved that way, but I don't really know. If I have to wait 50 years, I'm going to be very upset. <laughs> well, very right. Upset. I think that's the only way that it gets solved, uh, you know, like by the legal definition of like, yes, it, it has to be this guy. There's, this is his DNA. It's on the tie. And even that, a good defense attorney could probably argue it, right? Uh, you know, presuming, of course, that that Cooper would be alive at whatever point that would be, which, you know, even if he did survive, he's probably dead by now. Um, anyway, so, you know, if a good suspect came along, that made sense. And I, you know, in the person peddling, quote unquote, the suspect uh, did not try to leave out information and, and be persuasive. Uh, for me, um, I could believe it. Of course, um, I wouldn't believe it 100%. But, you know, I think my powers of deduction and, and what have you, uh, it, it would sit okay with me um, until definitive proof ever came down the line, if at all. So the long roundabout way of answering all that is unsolved because of the circumstances, how they lined up the way they did. Part of that was Cooper. A lot of that was just what happened that night. Um, I do believe it could be solved, and I think that someday it might be. Well, if I have a suspect I want to run by you, or if I want to tell you that he definitely survived the jump and you're a total <laughs> moron, is there somewhere that I can argue with you about all this stuff? Um, in the YouTube comments section. Uh, <laughs> I'll check back on it periodically. I don't I don't know that I'll listen back to to the podcast, but well, I will be. I, I found you on Reddit. Um, oh, can, right, right. Yeah, we could do can that. Can the audience I, argue with you on Reddit? Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I think my see, I don't social media too much. But I think my screen name on there is Balfour Digger ninety one. Balfour uh, Digger on Reddit. It's the DB Cooper uh, subreddit. <laughs> I I've thoroughly enjoyed reading what you have to say. Um, I've Thank been you. trying to get you on the show for months, but you're a very difficult person to get a hold of. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate it. No, it's very kind of you to reach out and it's been my pleasure. It's been a big honor. I've, I've listened to several of the different podcasts that you've done. So it was a, it was a surprise and an honor. And I, and I'm glad to have sat down for three hours to talk about this stuff. <laughs> Well, I'm glad you did, Jimmy. And thank you so much for coming on. It's been great, my friend. Of course, of course. Yeah. Oh, uh, 
not to <laughs> the last thing, if I may, right oh, before we leave, right before we leave, uh, I didn't get to hit this. I think that when it is solved, at which point, if it ever does, I think that the person is not going to be, I think they're going to be of mixed uh, ancestry. I think there's enough evidence and enough eyewitness testimony uh, that uses specificity in the way this individual looked um, for various uh, biases that the different people that have had suspects and things and the way that, you know, the hegemonic infrastructure in the United States, uh, I think that people have of different, I think that basically people are a little biased to, to think it was a person that was white when that in all likelihood is not the case, uh, that the person was at the very least of mixed ancestry. Uh, and so I think a good suspect uh, probably will be somebody that uh, is either Latin American, Native American, Mexican American, uh, and Caucasian ancestry as well. But uh, I think that's a good place to start. It's a good baseline. If your person is 100% Caucasian with sandy blonde hair or they're bald or they have blue eyes, probably not D.B. Cooper. That's my, that's all I'll say on it. Thank you so much, Darren. Thank you, Jimmy. I appreciate it. If you'd like an opportunity to chat with Jimmy, you can find him on the D.B. Cooper subreddit, which is not hard to find, but we have a link to it in the show notes for you. Would you like to present your work on D.B. Cooper? Do you want the opportunity to clear your relative's name? Did you solve the case? Hit us up. You can find the Cooper Vortex on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or email us, dbcooperpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Jimmy Calhoun. I am so glad I bullied you into doing this show. Thank you to Russell Colbert, who bullies me into continuing to do this show. Thank you to Darian Osadich for the use of his music. I'm Darren Schaefer, and thank you for listening to The Cooper Vortex.
down to the bone Look for a place to use the phone Little cafe outside of town He walked in, he just sat down Met a man with a cowboy hat He told a friend right where he's at Into the night he disappeared And from that night a legend reared This is how the story goes About the money and the man TV Cooper, they call me now Catch me if you can Forty years the secret's out The story has been told E.B. Cooper's done running now He was 80 